Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. A horseman name, even today, the four horsemen name meant a lot, and they wanted to keep that alive. And I remember uh, just uh, there being a lot of, and, and not on, not really. I wasn't involved in any brain, any meetings where we brainstormed on all this, but it was very apparent that they were trying to keep it alive from what the talk was in the backstage area. So November is when we see Flair team with Road Warrior Animal, and they take on Lex Luger and Sting at a Washington, D.C. house show. And here we would see J.J. Dillon accompany Flair and Animal to the ring, uh, but Paul Ellering is not with them. And a lot of people start to think, hey, this is a tease that the Road Warriors are going to become uh, part of the Horsemen. Uh, but, when you, fa- of course, that doesn't happen. And when you fast forward... Into January, we see Butch Reed debut on the January 21st, Saturday morning edition of Championship Wrestling on WTBS. And here he's managed by J.J. Dillon. And now everybody starts whispering, hey, maybe Butch Reed is going to become a part of the Horsemen. Fans are desperate to see somebody in these missing roles here. Uh, And at this point, I guess, Reed was considered by some to be uh, an associate of the Horsemen, just based on his ties to J.J. Dillon. Uh, but that official designation was never given to him very clearly the way it had been a year prior with Lex Luger. Um, I know Butch was super over in Florida. Uh, it does feel a little weird to think about the idea that Butch Reed may have been considered to be a horseman. Do you know who was high on him or why this didn't happen? We're talking about January of 89, right? Uh, January of, um, yeah, 89, that's right. Yeah, I listen. My, I was one foot out the door during that time, um, so uh, I don't remember much about what was going on and who was over. So uh, I can't give you an accurate uh, read on that one. Do you remember anything about uh, Kendall Wyndham? Because it feels like they start to really tease the pairing of Barry and Kendall, and Barry's trying to kind of bring Kendall along, uh, and then we see Kendall turn on Eddie Gilbert the week after Butch Reed would debut. Uh, and afterwards, J.J. would ra- raise both men's hand in victory, and Kendall would hold up the four fingers to the fans, letting them know he had just joined the Four Horsemen. And the same weekend, in an interview on Worldwide Wrestling, Barry would point out that Kendall had become a member of the Four Horsemen, and they had reunited the Wyndham family. He said, now that K.W. is a horseman, uh, more people are going to stand up and take notice of what we're doing in the ring. Because for the very last time, what I'm going to say is that horsemen are forever, and so are the Wyndhams. Uh, what do you think of uh, Kendall Wyndham 
giving an op- being given an opportunity here to join his brother Barry. It was more of an effort to keep the horseman alive than it than it was to really make uh, Kendall a star. Look, Kendall uh, was a great kid and a good worker, but he wasn't his brother. And uh, did it work as good as anything else? And again, what you're seeing is the promotion reaching to keep the horsemen alive, when in effect, let's be honest, the horsemen are dead. Yeah. Kendall Wyndham lasted about a week, but I guess technically it counts. He wound up leaving uh, not long after this happening and going back to Florida. About a week after he's announced as a horseman, Ric Flair and the Wyndhams introduce Hiro Matsuda as their new manager, uh, and he is a part, of course, of the Yamazaki Corporation, and it's revealed that the Yamazaki Corporation had purchased the contracts of the four horsemen. Um, what the fuck is this? This feels so off the rails, and yeah. I, I know that everybody is very complimentary of Kendra Wyndham and and Hiro Matsuda, and certainly they're deserving of our respects, but this does not feel like the Four Horsemen. No, this is, again, go back to our one of our shirts on ProWrestlingTees.com. This is a coffin on roller skates, is what this is. This is also a company in transition. The Crockett's right now can have, I guess, let too much money slip through the cracks. There's so many uh, things that have been documented about what that was. They were going to be sold to Turner Broadcasting, and Turner Broadcasting did not have a fucking clue about how to run a wrestling program, a wrestling company, and that eventually played out in 2001. If What, what was the corporation? Again, Yamazaki. 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 Okay. Yeah. It would have been much better for a real Yamazaki corporation to have money funneled in than it would be from TBS at that time. I wish that had been a shoot, to be honest with you. So you're, you're pretty sour on... Yeah, yeah. I'm a sour on everything right now uh, because, uh, well, I'm, here's why I'm sour on everything. I'm sour on everything, number one, because I grew up a fan of Jim Crockett Promotions. I was fortunate enough to be a part of that. I was part of the end of the run of the territories, which was magical. And I saw a company that I love going downhill. And with people that I love, Jimmy, David, Francis, and Jackie, and the people in the front office that I absolutely loved, that got me into wrestling, that trusted me, and I saw it being sold to a company that did not know what the fuck they were doing. And that's why I was upset. Uh, I did not want to work for Turner Broadcasting. I did not. Well, I ended up doing it, I know. But in that, in that, and this, this show is not about, this show is about the horsemen. It's not about my feelings. But I did not want to work for them because I saw every Saturday how shitty TV was. JR on his podcast, uh, the Jim Ross Report, and I've been on his podcast. We have discussed how Jim and I would tape a one hour show, ins and outs for a one hour show, and it would take us six hours to tape the freaking thing. Because they were so disorganized at Turner Broadcasting and really did not know how to produce their own TV show back then. Maybe it's not a fault of theirs. But uh, it was, I, I never, I always went to TBS and always, not always, but most of the time walked away feeling that 
that was a good show, but these fuckers don't know how to produce one. So I was very unhappy. There you go. Let's talk briefly about the Four Horsemen makeup at this point. Uh, we've got Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, Butch Reed, and Hero mm-hmm. Matsuda. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like this is the focus of the promotion at this time. Eddie Gilbert is in. Ricky Steamboat has just returned. It feels like a promotion in flux. Of course, we know it is. On the Saturday morning edition of Championship Wrestling on WTBS on February 4th, 1989, Flair and the Wyndhams officially introduce Hiro Matsuda as their new manager. And as the director of the Yamazaki Corporation, Matsuda announces he's purchased their contracts with the Four Horsemen, and he will officially be replacing James J. Dillon as the manager of the group. And the timeline would shake out like this. Dylan's last day with WTW is Tuesday, January 31st at the syndicated TV tapings. And this, of course, is the show that would air on February 4th. Uh, he would manage the Wyndham Brothers as his last official act with the Horsemen on Worldwide Wrestling. And then the next night, February 1st, at the WTBS tapings in Atlanta, is when Flair and the Wyndhams introduced Matsuda as their new manager. And they were now part of Matsuda's Yamazaki Corporation. As a result of the transition from the horsemen being managed by JJ to the Yamazaki Corporation, the four horsemen as a group go dormant until they're reunited later in the year. Now, in real life, JJ has begun to work immediately for the World Wrestling Federation, where he became a major player for Vince McMahon behind the scenes for several years before eventually returning to WCW during the Nitro era. So all of a sudden, um, between September 10th and February 1st, you've got Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, and J.J. Dillon. 60% of the original Four Horsemen are now in New York, and it's certainly the end of an era of the Four Horsemen, and I guess for Crockett Promotions. Um yeah, well, listen, I, I'm not putting myself in, in the same vein as Tully, Arn, Flair, J.J., Ole, Wyndham, but the guy who was holding the stick would leave pretty soon after that as well. I mean, we were all bailing out. Uh, one of the first calls that J.J. made when he started to work for Vince was to me. J.J. was the one that set me up talking to Vince McMahon, and it's something that we are going to, if you come out to Dallas on July 9th and see our live show that we're going to talk about even more in detail. We were all leaving the Titanic because none of us had the confidence that TBS, and I guess by that time we all got to know Jim Hurd and Jack Petrick, we, none of us had the confidence that the ship was going to stay afloat. Uh, they brought in uh, George Scott to be a booker, and George was so old school that he really didn't kind of fit in with what was going on. And I, I liked George a lot, but I remember going to some of his meetings saying, what the fuck's going on here? Uh, and that's right before I left. So, yeah, the, uh, we, were, the, we were leaving the sinking ship, and the, the horsemen were never the same. The promotion was never the same. Let me, uh, the rest of it was never the same. Let me ask you this. How big of a loss do you think? It was to Crockett for J.J. to leave? Uh, it was, was enormous. It goes back to what we were talking about 
a few moments ago. J.J. got very good payoffs, not necessarily because of what he was doing on TV, but what he was doing behind the scenes. J.J. is one of the most organized, one of the most intelligent men that I ever worked with in my life. He was one of the boys, but he was also a member of the office, and he was he had everything had everything organized. I, I don't, Dusty wouldn't have been the booker he would have been without J.J. working with him. Um, what was, what led to him leaving? What exactly led to him leaving? Yeah, I mean, is it just a better uh, offer or, uh, you know, he, no. J.J. would say he felt like the way that Turner was going to be handling the business was going right. to be too big of a departure from what he was used to and he just wanted to see if he could get another gig somewhere else. Right. Uh, we all felt that way. That's exactly what it was. Listen, the, the, the Turner buyout of Crockett, if you can call it that, was a shock to the system. We all saw it coming. We all knew it was happening. I knew I had a job. J.J., I'm sure, knew he had a job. But did we want a job with them? The answer was no. We did not at that time. Eventually, we all came back, uh, except for Tully, of course. And I look, I, I'm going to stop this. I'm not putting, I'm not going to put my name to this as, as part of all this, but eventually they all came back with the exception of Tully. Uh, and what JJ said about why he left is the core reason why everybody left. Well, let's run through some questions we got on Twitter. We invited you guys to participate in the conversation and help shape the show. Uh, follow us there if you haven't already. It's at WHW Monday. Uh, and there, pinned to the top for several days, we asked you for some four horsemen questions. So let's get to it. Uh, Tony, let's try to do some rapid fire here with our answers okay, so we can get through as many as we can. Well, you know, my brain is not rapid fire like it used to be. As a matter of fact, many parts of me are not as rapid fire as they used to be. That's what Lois was telling me. Yeah, see, I knew, I, boy, I threw you that softball. <laughs> you yeah, know what they I, say if you throw a redneck of softball, I, you go hit it out of the park. I, I heard you were throwing a lot of softballs over there. So Drew <laughs> on Twitter wants to know, uh, who are some of the guys who are discussed as potential horseman members but never made the cut? Well, the, obviously the uh, the Road Warriors were discussed as members of the Horsemen. Nikita Koloff was discussed as a member of the Horsemen at one time. Uh, Drew, anybody who was a big name was discussed as a member of the Horsemen. Sting, uh, they all came through the, the thought process there because the the idea of the Four Horsemen was a big one of the big ideas of what they were doing back then. Cage Nation wants to know, do you think Buddy Landell could have made it as a horseman? Uh, yes. I thought Buddy Landell was multi-talented. He just had personal problems that held him back. Um, Chad wants to know, what was the worst lineup of the four horsemen? Well, it would have to be the, uh, the, the last one we discussed with Butch Reed, a part of it. And Kendall, yeah. Kendall and... Uh, Hero Matsuda. That was the worst incarnation. That was that was four horsemen slash desperation. Let's talk about uh, Jason Thompson. He had a great question here. He says, "Please talk about the JJ workout match that led to the War Games '87, where he used all the horsemen finishers." JJ has often said he thinks this is one of his best matches he ever had because he wrestled like a manager, where he was able to use all the finishers. The uh, you know the the spine buster, the slingshot suplex, um, the rack. 
from Lex Luger, the figure four, but he didn't necessarily do any of them very well. He had lots right. of help from the horsemen on the outside. And obviously, he's he's actually a professional wrestler. He's been in the business a long time. He could have carried off any of these moves, but he wrestled in such a way where he presented himself as this kind of clunky, clumsy manager. Uh, what are your memories of that match? The first war games? Yeah, well, the the warm-up match, the workout match that J.J. Yeah. had against the enhancement talent leading to the I, war games. Yeah, it was it was really well done. It was very entertaining. It was uh, a vignette that led to the war games. But, in effect, it also told me what the finish in the war games is going to be. I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, JJ ended up submitting, and in the scheme of the horseman being a, this part, and he being just the manager, you kind of knew that it was going to be JJ being the weakest link, and JJ ended up losing it. But I, I like the warm up. I, I like the the thought about all that. That was good thinking. That was good booking. Late to the Nitro Party wants to know. Um, Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social theme slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void by law. See terms and conditions. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What were you and Barry Wyndham drinking that got you the drunkest you'd ever been? Wow. That story has taken a uh, life of its own. We were in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was on tour with WCW as a ring announcer, and we were working the uh, forum in Los Angeles the next day, and that was back in the private planes. You know, you talked earlier about uh, Tully being bumped off the private planes. That was back during the private planes. We had two of them, uh, and there was not room for me nor David Crockett nor Barry Windham to go on the private planes. So what did we do? The three of us went out drinking. Uh, and Barry would say, Shivani, this is a kamikaze. Okay? Boom, we'd all shoot it. Now I've got a watermelon shooter for you. Boom. Barry knew all these drinks. And here is a star-spangled banner. Have you ever had a star-spangled banner? I have not. Oh, I'm telling you, you're going to see fucking stars. Boom, and I hit that. And we, we kept shooting things uh, and drinks that I didn't know, and he would name them all. He knew what he was doing. Now, Barry Wyndham is a big guy. Uh, David Crockett and I are not. David eventually disappeared. Uh, and I don't know if he just really disappeared that night or just kind of disappeared from my memory because my memory is getting foggy. Now, for some reason, I, I know you know how this is, Conrad, because you're drunk a lot. Uh, some For some reason, I don't remember how we got to Whataburger, but we ended up getting to Whataburger that night. And we ordered a Whataburger and a couple of them, 
and we ordered, you could get like 10 jalapeno peppers for a dollar. So we're all in there, and David's still with us at this time. We're all in there eating and just drunker and chicken. We're just you know, pushing food down our gullet, which I know you are familiar with, and then eating jalapeno peppers. And Barry has the rental car and drops us off at the hotel. Now, Barry, this hotel had one of those hotels that had door that on the outside. Barry says, Shmati, I'll see you later. We're going to have to do this again. And so I walk towards the door in Albuquerque. I have a jacket on. And I hear something go, kathunk. And as I turn around, I hear something go, kathunk. I don't know what it was. I turn around, and Barry is screeching out the parking lot, and he's going to wherever he's going. Uh, I am so freaking drunk and full of food at this time that I just go into the hotel room and go face first, Kaboom on the bed. <laughs> when I, all right, when I wake up and I, to be honest with you, I don't know how we made the flight. I don't know who. I guess I don't know. Barry woke me up, but I got up the next morning, and I'm smelling something. I still smell Whataburger. And I, I don't know. Did I just like a you know the Cookie Monster have Whataburger crumbs all over my front? That's not the case. Here's what happened, and here's how I heard the thump. The motherfucking Barry Wyndham had taken a Whataburger, had opened it up, and threw it, and stuck on the back of my head. That was the thump. So as I go face first, I fall asleep with a Whataburger stuck in the back of my head. This is amazing. Isn't it amazing? And I get up, and I'm peeling the shit off, and it's got the mustard or whatever sauce they have and fucking onions and everything. <laughs> And the next day, Wyndham says, did you enjoy your last Whataburger? And I said, go fuck yourself. So we got on the plane, and now because we are on, uh, and we got to go to San Francisco that night, we're not spending the night in L.A. Uh, we land in L.A., we get to the forum earlier that day, and now my stomach is freaking rumbling. So I go to the bathroom, which is in the locker room, and I'm taking a crap, and I would, I know I'm, I'm sure I ate 10 jalapeno peppers. I have a feeling that eight of them came out whole. Uh, and I'm sitting there just, I mean, I'm in freaking pain. You ever taken a jalapeno pepper and wiped it on your asshole? I have not. That has not happened. Really, you sure? I'm sure. Okay. Well, that's what it felt like. Uh, and I'm in there crying, and Barry Wyndham, who knows what's going on, he said, Shivani? That's what he called me, like it was kind of half of what Hawk always called me. He said, Shivani, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like shit. I loved your dad, like Jack Mulligan, but you can go fuck yourself. So Barry Wyndham got me slap-ass drunk, had me sleep with a Whataburger on the back of my head, and then because I got slap-ass drunk, all these whole jalapeno peppers flew at my asshole, and he was there on the other side laughing at me. Uh, and... From that moment on, every time that Barry Wyndham wanted to uh, to go out to drink, I would decline uh, because I knew how he was. He always had that evil face, and he always would rub his hands together. I'm going to get you drunk. Now, I did go out with him sometime after that, but I tried to avoid Barry Wyndham. And uh, I know Flair is a legendary uh, partier and drinker, and the horsemen are, but 
Man, Barry Windham was one of the greats, was absolutely one of the greats, and could really hold his liquor. And he would really drink it instead of throwing it in the plant like Major Boy Ric Flair. Um, Mr. Kelly wants to know, was there ever a discussion to put Larry Zabisco in the Horseman? Yes. Because Larry was a great talker and a great worker. Uh, Mr. Gill on Twitter wants to know, and this is a good question. I don't think we ever talked about this. Was there ever any heat between Rick and other members of the Horsemen at the time? Obviously, Rick being the the kayfabe leader of the Horsemen and obviously uh, the top card of the act. Did he ever have any heat that you know of with any other specific performers? Performers or members of the Horsemen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me members of the Horsemen. Is what we're yeah, I, I know he and Arn bickered and argued a lot. Uh, I'm not so sure how much of that was on the square or not. Uh he and Tully always got along. Again, Luger was kind of loop, so he really didn't hang out with anybody. And, of course, I think it's it's well known, and, and I know Ole uh, is not what he used to be as far as his health has declined, but I know it's kind of well known that Ole has said that he thought Ric Flair was the shittiest worker of all time because he had the same match. There was probably some heat there, but I don't think any legitimate heat uh, with, with any of the guys, with the exception of, I mean, I, I remember... Flair and Arn coming in from the road. There was a time, and this is back when we all came back to WCW, there was a time that we did the local promos wherever we were. And Flair was working a program with Junkyard Dog, and he was miserable about having to work with Junkyard Dog because, as we know, uh, Junkyard Dog was a great star and a great character, but was not the worker Ric Flair was. And Flair came in one day, and... I've known Flair long enough because Flair would get to a point in his life to where he said, that's it. I'm not going to drink anymore. We all laughed at it. He said, starting a new life. Right, He did that a lot. Starting today, I'm going to stop drinking, cut down on my drinking. I'm going to make sure that I work out every day. He and I shook hands. We said, And he said, I'm going to help you lose weight, shake hands. We're go I'm going to have a from now on a new a new outlook, and it never happened, of course. But one time they came in and and Flair said to Arn, he said, "Look at us." Arn said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Look at us. We go out, we drink, we 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 run around, we go crazy, and we stay up all night, and we come in, we got to do these fucking promos, and you we've got to uh, work the next night." He said, we need to turn things around. Arn Anderson says, you're full of shit. I like to drink. I like to stay up all night. I like to wrestle. So shut the fuck up. And that was the that was a kind of a one argument that I remember, but I remember them bickering a lot all the time. Whether or not it was really heat between the two, I don't know. But for me and the guys, it was pretty fucking entertaining. Uh, Chad on Twitter wants to know, Barry became a horseman in his prime, was there ever any talk of Luger winning the world title from Rick and passing it to Barry? Barry Windham should have been the chosen one. That comes to us from Chad on Twitter. Chad, I, I appreciate your opinion on that. Uh, there was always talk about Luger becoming the world heavyweight champion. Whether he would pass it to Windham, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I don't think there was ever consideration with Barry, about Barry Windham being the world heavyweight champion, which was probably wrong, and Chad would probably agree with that. Well, we're going to give you a break until next week when we're going to come back with a brand new show. Go ahead and vote right now. We're going back to the poll. At Pritchard Show is where you can vote on Bruce's show, 
But where you can vote on this show is at WHW Monday. We get lots of questions on the Pritchard Show account wanting to know, where do I vote on Tony's poll? Well, here you go, at WHW Monday. And if you find Tony's poll, let Lois know where it is. So let's run through this. Um, I've got six topics, Tony, and I want you to narrow it down. We're gonna okay. cut. We're gonna cut two. Do you want me to cut one from eighty-five and eighty-seven, or cut one from ninety-eight and two thousand? Hmm. Uh, eighty-five and eighty-seven. Keep them or cut them. Cut them. Okay. Here we go. Uh, poll topic number one. This comes to us on July seventh, nineteen ninety. It's the most famous, at least in my opinion, Great American Bash from Baltimore, Maryland. This is where Sting finally wins the world title from the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. What might we talk about if Great American Bash 1990 wins the poll? Uh, we'll talk about Sting finally becoming the world heavyweight champion. And we'll also discuss uh, Tony Schiavone's commentary in that. Do you remember who my partner was? Uh, is that... Um, is that uh, Jim Ross? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm I'm thinking now. I've got in my mind, boy, I'm 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 walking on thin ice here. I've got in my mind a big show that Bobby Heenan and I did from Baltimore, and I'm sure it was in 1990. But I think we'll talk about Sting finally winning the world heavyweight title. Let's get to poll topic number two. It's a pretty big deal. Also, the same day, July 7th, 1996. It's hard to believe that this was 21 years ago. It's Bash at the Beach, 1996, where we have Hulk Hogan join the New World Order. Hell has frozen over. Hulk Hogan is a bad guy. What might we talk about if the 1996 Bash at the Beach wins the poll? Well, we're obviously going to talk about the turn of Hogan because it was a uh, really a a seminal moment in, in wrestling. A lot of people have commented and uh, have criticized what I've said in the past on many matches, many pay-per-views, but I have gotten a lot of positive feedback to what I said at the end of that. Uh, and the trash going in the ring. I think we need to talk about the turn. Did Tony Schiavone really know that Hulk Hogan was going to turn? Was Bobby Heenan's comment when Hulk Hogan came out the wrong thing to do? Was it freestyling? Or was it planned? And how did that change the business? Let's talk about poll topic number three. This one certainly changed the business. It's July 6th, 1998. We're coming up on the 19-year anniversary of the WCW Monday Night Nitro when Bill Goldberg beat Hulk Hogan to become the World Heavyweight Champion. What might we talk about if the Georgia Dome Nitro from July 6th wins the poll? We need to talk about Goldberg, and I know we talked about Goldberg on the very first episode of WHW, uh, but we need to talk about Goldberg, and we also need to talk about uh, Hulk Hogan agreeing uh, to do the job and what that meant for wrestling at that time. Last but certainly not least, July 9th, 2000. This is Bash at the Beach 2000. This is probably most famous for being the show where Hulk Hogan and Vince Russo had a spat. And Hulk Hogan winds up walking out on the company. Lawsuits would follow. Everybody's got their own world title belt. And before you know it, Booker T is our world champion. What might we talk about if Bash at the Beach 2000 wins the poll? I know I'm going to get some people pissed off by saying this. And one of the people I'm going to get pissed off by saying this is my good friend, Vince Russo, which I don't know if you and Bruce Pritchard can say that. But uh, we're going to talk about 
whether that was really a work or not. Uh, let's just I leave it, it was. Let's just leave it, it at that. Yeah. All right. So here you go. Here's our four topics again. The Great American Bash 1990. Many people regard it as one of the best shows in WCW history. We see the coronation of Sting. He finally becomes the world champion. What a historic moment that was. Uh, maybe only trumped by the next one, though. Hulk Hogan becomes a bad guy. Bass at the Beach 1996 is poll option number two. Uh, it was certainly a changing of the guard uh, for WCW when on July 6, 1998, Goldberg became the world champion. We talked about it a little bit in our very first episode. We'll break down the entire episode of Nitro here, though, if poll option number three is victorious. Last but certainly not least, as if we haven't heard about Vince Russo enough, let's talk about the time he did some business with Hulk Hogan at Bash at the Beach 2000. There's your four poll topics. Cruise on over and vote right now at WHW Monday on Twitter. If you haven't already, go check us out on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. It's a big deal because we've got lots of horseman memories on there. We're going to give away a couple of books. And we want you to see you on July 9th. That's at whwlive.com. We're coming to you, Dallas. We're bringing Bruce Pritchard and a couple of surprises as well. We're going to cover all things Tony Schiavone and the WWF. And, Tony, I can't help but notice as I look at my clock, it feels like it's about that time, man. It is that time, Conrad. Thank you very much. And, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Texas death match. And this is coming to you from Los Angeles and the Forum. It's Conrad Thompson against Barry Windham for the Western States Heritage title. Whatever the fuck that means, it's for the title. And now, the match is underway, and Barry Windham's got the claw on Conrad. He's got him down. Conrad trying to go for the dick shot, but he can't reach it. He can't reach the dick shot. Oh, my God. What is what's going on in the back of Conrad's trunks? It seems that there are jalapeno peppers flying out of Conrad's ass. And now there's a Whataburger flying out of his ass. Windham's got the claw on Conrad. And now, out of the back, oh my God, it's Dave Silva running in with a sombrero. We're out of time. We gotta go. The tape machines are rolling. See you next week on What Happened When. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at Chumba Casino. Casino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Titus and Tate, a podcast from two obsessed basketball lovers. Twitter's a place for losers. I think the same thing about podcasts. I think you and I are losers. We podcast. We know we're losers. Most podcasts, you and I are doing it right now, are done over Zoom. I'm not even wearing pants right now. It's like, you know, we're going back to, the, we're back to where we started, where you're just like kind of sitting. No, we used to wear pants when we, when we did podcasts. We've definitely gone, we've gone downhill. More than just analysts and stats. Titus and Tate, listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Tommy Young, you come over here, you save me on my market. It's a little different than last week, but First Family Mortgage is still here and ready to help you save some cash. No payments for two months. Really think about that. It's your single biggest bill, and you get to pocket all that cash for two months. It's just an extra added benefit of saving money with First Family. And specifically, we're talking about getting out of debt faster. You know, in our real life, we hear people talk about, hey, I've got four car payments left, and then I own this baby free and clear. How many house payments do you have left? If you don't know the answer, you haven't done enough planning, First Family can help you get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Maybe you've got a second mortgage. Don't get stuck with a home equity line of credit. You're probably paying interest only and headed for a balloon payment. And maybe you've got credit card debt. Man, get rid of the minimum payments. Spend 10 minutes with us and get rid of all that credit card debt once and for all. But most importantly, cut years off of your loan. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this, but you do need to spend 10 minutes on the phone with us right now at 888-425-0105 or online at savewithbruce.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to WHW Monday! Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett Promotions. And now, let's go to the ring! And here's your co-host, Hey Hey, it's Conrad Thompson! Hey Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When... Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network, and the man of the hour is with us, Mr. Tony Chavon. Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, hello. How you doing, bud? Hello, slapdicks all around the world. It was good seeing everybody this past weekend at Icons of Wrestling in Philadelphia. You know, Conrad, a lot of guys wearing our shirt. Well, I like the sound of that, and I think uh, Mrs. Chavon does, too. Roll time. Yeah, I think she does, too, so we're all pretty excited about it. Um, We've had a good week, and uh, it, it's great as we move into the fall season uh, to, to start talk, getting ready to move into the fall season, start talking about uh, some of the things that happened during WCW during the fall time of year. And uh, I'm just excited to be with you again. Overall, Conrad, I'm just damn excited. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm excited to talk about this week, too. We've got a pretty controversial topic. It's Hogwild 1996. Let's get right into it. Let's talk about the decision to run this show. Uh, Tony, to me, so much of this seems like a bad decision on paper. For one, it's in the middle of nowhere, so travel is expensive. Secondly, it's outdoors, so you've always got to wonder about the weather. Third, it's on a Saturday, and we've conditioned our audience that pay-per-views are on Sunday. And lastly, well, it's fucking free. 
pay-per-view is actually free if drunk for a show like this. So we're going to go through all of that. And, and I feel like I should mention, this is actually the second outdoor free pay-per-view that WCW ran. Uh, the prior was the 1995 Bash at the Beach uh, right there in Huntington Beach, California. Meltzer has went on record as saying that that show was a total fiasco live and among the worst pay-per-views of all time. Before we talk about Hogwild 96, uh, how did you think Bash at the Beach 95 was, Tony? You were there. Well, uh, yeah, I was there. Uh, it wasn't a good pay-per-view. Uh, was Dave Meltzer there live? Did he come from Campbell, California, wherever he's from, uh, to, to see it live? To know that it was a fiasco? I don't know, but you're disagreeing with that? You take issue with the comment that it was a fiasco? Well, it was it was different. It was, uh, but it had, I thought it had a pretty good feel to it. And, and again, we're kind of, the announcers were kind of over to the right, so we didn't have anything to do with the setup. The setup could have been a fiasco being outside of the beach. Uh, some of the fans could have been unruly. I wasn't in security, uh, so I can't address that. So I just don't know how somebody can comment that the live event was a fiasco. It wasn't that good of a pay-per-view. I understand that. But I thought it had a pretty good look to it. Well, yeah, and so we're going to talk a lot about the look of the show. But before we, we do, let's let's just ask this. Do you consider Bash at the Beach 95 a success? Well, I don't know. What was the buy rate? Okay. I, I meant just from the live experiment. Of the yeah, pay-per-view. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. How do you think that that outdoor beach environment was different from the Sturgis atmosphere? Clearly, two totally different backdrops, but a similar concept in that we're doing an outdoor show, and we're doing it for maybe non-wrestling fans, and we're doing it free. Uh, how would you classify that beach show compared to the Sturgis shows? Well, you, you've got to classify based on the clientele. Right. You're, you're at Sturgis, and you're at this big uh, biker fest, so you got bikers. Now, listen, bikers, and not all bikers at a biker fest are the tough guy bikers. Sure. You know, I mean, Eric Bischoff of, was there. Yeah, right. There, there are guys who like to bike on the weekend, and they make Sturgis one of their destinations. And in California, you got a different clientele or a different crowd because you got the beachgoers. Huntington Beach is a pretty big beach, and uh, California surfers, those type of dudes, so it, it was much different. Uh, but it's similar in that you had to put a wrestling event and it had to put an arena, so to speak, or a ring in a place that wasn't conducive to have a, having a wrestling ring. Uh, Tony, were any of the, the dudes that you ran into at that beach show, did you find any that were dynamic? No, I did not. And I didn't find anyone that was on a skateboard or, or anybody, uh, anything like that. But I did see a bunch of dudes. Uh, when I was in Huntington Beach, let's talk a bunch of dudes. Let's talk about a lot of dudes at Sturgis. I've always wondered why Sturgis, and yeah. it's really difficult to put my finger on. Look, let's take a look at what other people have said. Kevin Sullivan once said this happened because Bischoff bought a house in Wyoming and just fell in love with this part of the country, and he had become a bit of a Harley guy. So he used this ride to bond with the guys and just basically set up a fun event for himself and his friends. Would you agree that that played a big part in the decision to do this? Uh, I, I wasn't. I know Eric moved to Wyoming uh, and uh, bought a house in Wyoming, uh, and I do know that he fell in, in in love with the country. I thought it was because he was a biker enthusiast, right? Uh, and, and I uh, that had everything to do with this. Kevin Nash uh, said something like, um, "Only eleven guys rode bikes, including the boss," and I think that's a direct quote. And they were all about making this 
quote-unquote pilgrimage to Sturgis. Um, so, again, that kind of reinforces the narrative of, hey, here's a biker rally that Bischoff wants to go to and throw a big party. And, yes, maybe it does make a cool visual, but I guess the question I'm trying to drive to here is, would a show like this ever happen in the WWF, in your opinion, Tony? No, it would not have. Would Vince McMahon have run a pay-per-view show with all the expense that a pay-per-view entails without even trying to generate revenue at the gate? No, he would not have done that. I don't think he would have done that. I don't ever see. I never would have seen Vince going to Huntington Beach. I never never would have seen Vince go to uh, South Padre Island. I never would have seen Vince going to Panama Beach, uh, nor to Sturgis. And again, this this feels like a decision, and we've said this a lot here on the program about WCW, this feels like a decision that would never be made by someone footing the bill. I don't say that to disparage Bischoff because I feel like he was making decisions that he felt Turner would like. But again, if this was Eric Bischoff's actual cash on the line, would it have happened? I say not a chance. That's my guess. What say you, Tony? I agree. And this is the, the underlying bottom line of why Vince succeeded and we didn't. It was Vince's money. And when it's your own money, you approach it differently. You know that as, as well as anybody else. Do you know if Bischoff negotiated some sort of incentive for bringing the event to Sturgis? These days, it's pretty common for a town to, like, bid on WrestleMania, and the WWE actually gets a check from the city for bringing the show there. Do you know if something like that took place here? Obviously not to the WrestleMania level. This is 96 in WCW, and it's Sturgis. But there's probably something on, on there's some sort of meat on the bone for WCW, right? Uh, well, I, would it have been? I, I I don't know for a fact had it been or not. I was never in any of those negotiations to bring it uh, to Sturgis. But does Sturgis really need this event? Well, Sturgis, you know, Sturgis has been a destination for bikers. It always was well uh, was well populated, uh, well attended, even without us. Uh, so I, I'm not so sure that that Sturgis really needed us. In fairness, you know, you guys did feature it pretty prominently on your television for the build-up for the pay-per-view, but then, you know, the actual TBS broadcast, which was live right before the pay-per-view, really highlighted the event quite a bit. So it felt like maybe there was some sort of cross-promotion there. I'm sure Bischoff has the answers to a lot of these questions. He's actually covering this same topic with his podcast, Bischoff on Wrestling, this week. So this is a great companion piece. Uh, we're going to shit on the event, and then Eric is going to tell you why this was all a great idea and made a lot of sense. And then somewhere in the middle, you can kind of form your own opinion. Um, let's talk about the actual setup for the show itself. You guys were outside all day here, Tony. How hot was it? It wasn't really that bad, Conrad. Uh, it really wasn't. It wasn't uh, uh, oppressive heat like you find in Georgia or Alabama. Sure. But uh, it, 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 was actually a, it was actually a pretty nice day. How long did it take for the WCW crew to get all of this set up, all the rigging, wow. the lights, the entrance, and then and what precautions were made in case it were to rain? That's obviously got to be something people think about. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I can't answer uh, as to how long it took to set this stuff up. Uh, a couple but of days? I can tell you, they were, out, they were out there quite a while. Yeah. As far as provisions for rain, there were no provisions for rain. So if it starts raining, just the equipment's fucked, the lights are fucked? Yeah. Okay. There you go. Learn something new every day. 
Yeah. Uh, why was the ring elevated? Did the boys consider this dangerous? Anytime I see an elevated ring like this, I think about the way Rick Rude, you know, lost his career with Sting. It just feels more dangerous to me, especially yeah. when you've got some of the more high-flying luchador stuff. Why was it elevated, and, and did you know of any of the guys trying to do a walkthrough to become familiar with what they had there? Oh, yeah, they did walkthroughs. Uh, there's no question they did that. They did that at every arena we went to sure. as far as going out and looking at it. Uh, but it was elevated because there was no seating and there was no bowl, seating bowl. You had to elevate the ring high so that everybody that was parked side by side, front to back, could see up into the ring. That's why it was elevated. I, I really like that you said that because you said the word parked. And if you haven't seen this event, there's tons and tons of motorcycles that just surround the area. People were encouraged to bring their, their ride their motorcycle over. So they didn't have seating. Your bike was your seat. And, and this looks like, as a fan, that this thing happened in a damn gravel parking lot. That can't be right, can it, Tony? That's exactly right, Conrad. As a matter of fact, during the course of the the evening, a lot of wrestlers, a lot of managers, a lot of cameramen, a lot of grips, a lot of people who worked, some announcers got hit with got hit with handfuls of pea gravel, pea sized gravel. You know, time. that's um that's actually what I wanted to talk about next because you guys started to see a little bit of an, an epidemic here when Hogan turned heel at the Bash of the Beach in '96. The fans started throwing trash in the ring. And that trend would continue on Nitro when the NWO took over during the Luger and Bubba main event. Hogan cut somewhat of a worksheet promo on Randy Savage, blaming his divorce on Hogan, when really it was Randy who couldn't quote-unquote rise to the occasion. So this brings just an onslaught of trash to be thrown into the ring. And it was such a spectacle at the time, I thought it was a work. I've learned in years since it was not. I bring this up now because you guys are having matches around a bunch of people who've probably been drinking all weekend, and now you're literally in a gravel parking lot. Is this not in the book of bad ideas? Yes, it is. You know, Conrad, we're playing Monday morning quarterback here, and I understand, and there were a number of matches on this card that were the drizzling ships, and I understand that. But I'm going to tell you from my point of view, I enjoyed it. Well, well, listen, I, I, I want to make sure that we're telling the full story. So I don't want it to just okay. be all negative, but it does feel a little bit like we're going against the grain with their, almost every decision so far. So was one, let me ask this. Was one of the things you enjoyed about this show having to piss and shit in a bucket in the back because there was no bathroom? Because the boys have said over the years that if ever, you know, they had to do a one or a two, it was in a bucket in the back. So really? did you have a special bucket? Was Tom Zink there? Were you hanging around that bucket? Talk no, me through I, it. I, first of all, I don't remember Tom being there that night. And second of all, I remember porta potties. Okay, cool. So there you go. That's a, that, let's just strike down that rumor and innuendo. There were not pissing shit buckets. Now, the porta potties, were they manned by Klondike Bill? <laughs> no, Klondike was gone by that time, but. Klondike would have certainly been the gentleman, uh, or was he gone by that time? No, he was not. He, no, he was there. Was oh, God. I was gone by that time. Uh, Klondike certainly would have been the gentleman to hold open the door for the ladies to go. Oh, what a party. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> hey, so you're, you're in a fun kind of party environment, and there's yeah. been lots of talk that whenever you guys would do one of these shows on the beach for, like, Nitro at La Vila or whatever, 
that there would be lots of day drinking going on. Do you remember there being any crazy partying stories from uh, partying stories from any of the cast and crew that week? Uh, we I remember a lot of partying stories. The cast and crew when we would go to Disney right. and go to a hotel and hang out there for like a week or or, or so. But as far as the cast and crew, you know, I uh, I'm not I don't I didn't hang out with the cast and crew, so I wasn't I wasn't a crew hanger outer. Well, let's talk about somebody who was uh, known to have a good time, and let's address the elephant in the room. Bobby Heenan was impaired on this show, and I'm not going to go so far as to say he was drunk because that's a term thrown around too loosely. So we'll instead be technical and honest. He was under the influence here. You could hear it. Um, Did you see Bobby drink or have a conversation with him? Uh, I have a conversation with him about him drinking? Yeah. Is that what? Okay. All right. Look, I never deceived. I never did see Bobby uh, uh, swig a bottle of liquor, but Dusty said to me, I, I remember saying to Dusty, I said, I think, this is after the show, I said, I think he was having too much. And Dusty says, what did you think it was in that water bottle? Right. Oh, and I said, oh, okay, so there you go. Uh, at the time when this, when the event was going on, I was... I was growing more and more upset because he wasn't Bobby the Brain Heenan as he was at the first part of it. By the time the Ric Flair-Eddie Guerrero match took place, it seemed like he was really out of it to me. So I didn't know what was going on at that time. I didn't know maybe he's on painkillers, maybe he's tired, too much time in the sun. Don't know. Drunk, don't know. Had too much drink, don't know. But I do know that as I'm doing it, I'm thinking that he is really not 100% here. But then I go back and I listen to it again, and I did this past week before we did the show. It didn't come off as badly as I thought. Well, let me ask you this. It sounds like you can make a judgment call there. You know, at some point you and Dusty are even, you know, without overtly saying it, you're having a little bit of fun with it on the air. Aren't you supposed to be some sort of half-ass producer at this point? Wouldn't that make you his boss? Couldn't you have said something or done something? Or did you just not feel like that was your place? Well, it was my place. But are you asking me to just put my headset down at the time when we're doing a show without breaks and say, come on, get your ass in gear? My first job is being an announcer right now. I'm doing the best job that I can. Okay, so when it's over. So why are you throwing shit on me for him being inebriated? Well, because he was supposed to answer to you, and if you're the producer, you're technically his boss. So couldn't you have taken him to the woodshed after? Yeah, I could have. And what did you do? I didn't. I ignored it. Uh, What did Dusty say about his performance? About Bobby's performance? Well, well, or lack thereof. He kind of laughed it off like, you know, the brain man, he was two sheets to the wind or three sheets to the wind or whatever. I mean, he just, you know, and there's a a point to where, and and, and I went back and listened to it, when Eddie Guerrero is coming out and uh, Dusty says something to the point, this is during Eddie's entrance, to the point to, uh, well, Brain, and he, he, he is leading into Bobby Heenan to say something, and I know that Bobby is inebriated, and I would prefer, if I'm going to go to Dusty, Dusty not throw it to Bobby, and I look at Dusty like, don't get him involved in this conversation, and you can hear Dusty laugh, and he's reacting to, to my looking at him. Uh, that time as well. So uh, Dusty kind of tried to egg it on by bringing Bobby into the conversation. And you know, Dusty just liked to have fun on the set. So Hypothetically, would Bobby Heenan have gotten drunk 
during a WWF show? Of course not. Is that not just a microcosm of what was wrong with WCW? Doesn't it say it all? Okay, but, and uh, again, I'm, I'm not blaming... Well, blame me for it if you want to, but uh, it's just Bobby was very unhappy with uh, the WW, with WCW. Anybody who worked in the W, everybody who had worked in WWE or WWF and had made the move to WCW like I did for that one year, realized that this wasn't what we, what we remembered. And this wasn't the professionally run organization that we had remembered. Uh, well, uh, no shit, it's not the professional organization. You're allowed to go to work drunk. And, and that feels a little bit like passing the buck to me. Like, well, this place isn't professional, so I'm just going to take their money and get fucked up. Well, I can't. You know what? I can't. I'm not putting words in Bobby, Brain, Bobby the Brain Heenan's mouth on that. No, I'm not either. Meltzer said, uh, he wrote in the newsletter, that Heenan was out to lunch for the entire show and actually took away from the show instead of adding to it. And Bruce Mitchell had this to say in The Torch. Bobby Heenan's practice of calling pay-per-views when he appears to be obviously impaired is an embarrassment to WCW, Turner Broadcasting, and the industry on a whole. I'm not talking about a style that I don't enjoy or don't think enhanced the product, such as Lee Marshall's. I mean Heenan's habit of apparently not maintaining the minimum standard that every other broadcast company would require before allowing a person on the air from inability to keep track of his partner's discussions to his mistimed, incoherent jokes to his babbling out of control was so blatantly unprofessional that Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes took to mocking him on the air. Rhodes obviously is now a member of the pay-per-view announcing team in part to cover for Heenan. Think I'm exaggerating? How about when he couldn't tell the difference between Rick and Scott Steiner? Heenan's performance would have gotten him kicked out of a booth at a high school football radio broadcast. And the it's only wrestling excuse doesn't cut it either. Heenan has paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to share one of the quickest wits this business has ever seen with fans who pay 25 bucks and upwards to get the show. WCW officials are to blame for not helping Heenan to be at least physically prepared to share that wit with their customers. It's also unfair to expect Shivani and Rhodes to constantly have to deal with this and somehow do a competent job of calling WCW sometimes wild and woolly pay-per-view shows. Someone at WCW has to step in and demand that either Heenan meet that minimum requirement or remove him from the broadcast team before he hurts WCW, or worse, himself further. Your response to Bruce Mitchell and the torch here? Uh, it, he's right. He, he's right. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we play Monday morning quarterback here. I should have... I should have pushed the callback button and say someone has to listen to Heenan here and make a decision whether they want to keep him on here or not is what I should have done. But you didn't want to rat out your friends, baby. Well, I, I, I was hoping I wasn't the only one listening to this shit. Right. Well, Bruce Mitchell was listening. Dave Meltzer was listening. No, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about producer-wise. I don't think anybody else was. I don't think they were either. I don't. I don't think we were being produced at all back then. Let me ask this: There's a rumor that WCW was trying to bring Ted DiBiase in to be a TV announcer. Do you think perhaps he was part of Bischoff's backup plan for Heenan? Probably was. That sounds pretty legit to me. You know, Bobby really lost favor with Eric. Sure. Uh, and uh, and I have a feeling this may have been part of it. Well. Um, you know, there's there's lots of 
I think See, most, I'm, I'm thinking, look, I'm thinking that I'm to blame for all this shit. How is this your fault? Were you pouring the booze in his water bottle? Way. It just sounds that way. Well, listen, you certainly could have put your foot down, but at the same time, there is a minimum expectation that you're not supposed to show up drunk to work. Well, right. Or worse, drink on the job. But I know that, you know, people are going to tweet me and say, oh, Gordon Soley did. And, oh, okay, I get that. But if we're going to, you know, kind of armchair quarterback everything else that happened in WCW, why is this off limits? Yeah. Uh, Meltzer wrote, Lee Marshall, thing to talk about. Well, it's not an easy thing to talk about because of Heenan's current condition, but the reality is we're not talking about Heenan in 2017. We're talking about the time that he got loaded on a pay-per-view broadcast 21 years ago, and you didn't pour pour it in there, and and, and I didn't. So we're just talking about what was out there, what was in the torch, what was in the observer, and, you know, we're telling the truth. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Send your hate tweets to at Hey Hey It's Conrad or at Tony Schiavone 24, but that's how it happened, guys. And uh, if we're going to call it down the middle, let's do it. Uh, Lee Marshall was uh, mentioned in The Observer. Meltzer had this to say. Lee Marshall has been doing play-by-play on both pro and worldwide of late. The only conclusion I can come to about that assignment, since Marshall is by far the worst of WCW announcing's bunch, is that Tony Schiavone wants to make sure the only guy who gets any visibility is a guy that nobody will ever think is a better announcer than he is. Your response? Uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not in charge of those assignments. Never was in charge of those assignments. The only, uh, the only, I was only in charge of announcers as far as approving their uh, expense reports or helping them with travel. That was all I did, and I also did uh, bullshit. And I always call them bullshit because they are bullshit. I was always in charge of bullshit reviews which are big on the corporate level. And I would always just say, here's what your rev- here's what I wrote for your review. Do you like it? Yes, sign off on it type shit. I never would sit down with an announcer. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have sat down with the announcer and said, you know what? I don't like you doing that. Or I don't think you should have said that. Or I don't think we should sell it that way. And then I would have been perceived a bigger prick than I was already perceived as one anyway. I never did do that. Uh uh, so I wasn't in charge of those assignments. Wants to make sure the only guy who gets any visibility is a guy that nobody ever thinks is a better announcer. Fuck him. I mean, absolutely fuck him. You know he can he can go he can suck my dick. Oh, we're coming in hot. Hey, let me ask you. Damn right we are. When you filled okay. out Lee Marshall's review, did you write "You're right"? <laughs> <laughs> like if I was filling out his review and I wasn't going to care, which clearly you didn't. I would have just yeah. written, "You're doing right." Yeah, look, I was, I look, I was all, I was very non-confrontational back then, and I, I didn't feel it was my place as one of the announcers to critique other announcers. Well, weren't you a producer? To a certain extent, yes. Okay. But I wasn't producing announcers. Let's move on. I was heading into this show. WCW was leading heavily in the ratings, winning by a full point at times. Do you remember a particular show or day when everyone realized that the tide had turned, so to speak? Uh, there was no particular day that we had felt the tide had turned. It was just kind of a gradual thing on my end. I never did. There was never any celebratory day or time where we all, after the show was over, 
went in the back and gave everybody high fives or shook everybody's hand and said, man, we really kicked their ass that time, didn't we? No, I never thought that. And we just kind of moved ahead to the next one. We always, as, and I've brought this up on, uh, on earlier shows, we always kind of like bolted after the show was over sure. and left the arena. So I don't think there was any time that we all got together. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of lack of camaraderie backstage uh, among production people. A lot of lack of camaraderie. And I don't know, do you, you want to blame me for that, too? No, I don't want to blame you for any of that. Is there anywhere where Meltzer's going to blame me for that, too? I don't think so. I think he's got I should have, You know what? I should have, through the years, called Meltzer after every show, and I wouldn't have to be defending this bullshit. Uh, it was around this time you guys had temporarily moved operations to Orlando from Atlanta, and there was talks of doing that permanently, right? Why didn't that happen? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. Well, probably because uh, that Turner didn't want us to pull up stakes and move there, but I always thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, we uh, we moved to during the uh, the Summer Olympics in Atlanta because CNN Center was ground zero. Right. Uh, we we moved uh, for the entire Olympics, even prior to that, our operations to a bungalow backstage at the MGM Studios. And it was it was absolutely a great summer for everybody because we all got to run at the park and we got to do shows at at uh, at the Disney Studios and the crowds were always you know pumped up because it was part of the uh, was part of the rides or you know part of the experience of the MGM Studios. How did it was Di- great. How did Disney like having you guys? Well, they loved having us until uh, we threw uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. into a. Uh, into a trailer, into a trailer like a lawn dart, and then that, <laughs> that, that, because of the ambulances came in, and, and uh, uh, because of their guests coming in that night, uh, we're all up in arms about seeing someone taking out an ambulance. That was not the Disney way. That was not the Disney family way, and that began us going down the shitter with them. Hey, so let me mention the night show you're talking about took place on July 29th, and the match in the ring was Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage against Flair, Benoit, and Steve McMichael. Jimmy Hart runs in from the back and says the outsiders are there. Eventually, everyone stops and goes to the back and sees Arn and Bagwell laid out. Um, Scott Hall lays out Riggs, and then famously, Rey Mysterio dives onto Kevin Nash and catches him and then spins him around and lawn darts him into a trailer. Uh, and then Hall and Nash jump in a limo, and Randy Savage jumps on the roof of the limo, and all hell breaks loose. Woman's freaking out. Benoit's in near tears. Uh, Sting and Flair in the ambulance. Mysterio's carted off. The angle actually died in the ratings, but it piqued interest for sure, and it's something people are still talking about. So if you'd like to see this pretty iconic segment, 
It's July 29th, 1996 on the WWE Network. Yeah, it didn't really fit in with uh, Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> Needless to say. Well, yeah, something, right. something else that didn't fit in uh, was you guys and the WWF. You're embroiled in a lawsuit here. Uh, things are actually starting to get serious by August here. Depositions are being taken, including Scott Hall meeting with Jerry McDivitt, uh, the WWF lawyer we've all heard about for so long. And everybody is named in this. WCW, Ted Turner, Bischoff. Were you ever deposed in this? I don't remember us talking about that before. I was not deposed in this. I was deposed uh, when back when they were claiming that there were secrets being passed. I think. Uh, I was deposed in that, but not in this one. So the, the talk in the whole company at this point is who's going to be the fourth man? And it's expected that we're going to get this reveal at Hogwild. And the dirt sheets are guessing it might have been anyone from British Bulldog to Bret Hart to Jeff Jarrett. It's actually supposed to be Sean Waltman, the former 1-2-3 kid from the WWF. But now at the last minute, right before he sets the debut here, he's named in the lawsuit and his likeness can't be used. So his debut is stalled. Do you remember that being the plan that 6, S-Y-X-X, was actually supposed to be the fourth member? That was the plan. Absolutely. And they, what you've said is, is correct. Is, is correct That he was named in the lawsuit, and we had to kind of uh, pull things back on that. So they go with uh, Brutus the fucking barber beefcake briefly, but we'll get there and talking about that in a little while. As we covered on our Back at the Beach episode, which is available now in the archives, this was supposed to be Hogan's next to last pay-per-view. And they had already contracted uh, Slim Jim to sponsor Halloween Havoc and promised them a Savage Hogan main event. But the other big show they're actually trying to build, even through this entire pay-per-view, is the Clash of the Champions on August 15th from Denver. Now, that's a two-hour free TBS special, and now it's going to be headlined by Hulk Hogan, now going by Hollywood Hogan, against Ric Flair. And this is the first time they've met where Flair is supposed to be the babyface. Uh, their prior clash match from August of 94 at that point was the single most watched wrestling match ever on cable television. Over 4.1 million homes saw it. It did a 6.7 rating. And, of course, those two guys held the record for the biggest pay-per-view gross in WCW history for their matches in 94. But I feel like there's probably some strategy to giving this away on a TBS special as opposed to putting it on the Fall Brawl pay-per-view in September. Can you clue us in here? It's very logical. We were feeding the TBS beasts. It was more important for us to draw numbers for Turner, Nitro, Thunder, whatever, than it was to get buy rates on pay-per-view. Not, not too good of a business plan, is it? Can I just freestyle... That yeah. since Hogan's paper, since Hogan's contract was coming to a close, and Halloween Havoc was supposed to be the last one, that maybe Bischoff booked this against Flair to show Turner the value that Hogan had. Now that they had this NWO angle over him, uh, it feels like a fresh coat of paint, and this could pop a big rating for them, and then maybe give Bischoff some leverage to go back and renegotiate and get Hogan for another big money deal. I think your uh, I think your freestyling is right on. I think he wanted to show the Turner people how valuable Hogan was to us, which we all knew he was. Sure. And this was a way to do it. 
I think you're right on there, Conrad. You should have been running the company, you motherfucker. Well, see, the problem with that is I was 15. See, that's the well. issue. <laughs> uh, we the, did the, a lot of things. We did a lot of things that made us look like we were fucking 12. Uh, there was talk in the dirt sheets here that the NWO angle had become the Hulk Hogan show. And yeah. now that he was involved, Hall and Nash were a little more than background noise. So in w WCW decides, hey, let's go ahead and try to do something a little different. And they have Hall and Nash take over the control room on a nitro where the guys are actually bullying the producers and directors. Uh, now, in the process, we miss our chance to see a match between Renegade, Joe Gomez, Jim Powers, and Alex Wright as they take on Kevin Sullivan, Hugh Morris, the Barbarian, and the fucking Leprechaun. Mm. Um, I don't know that we've ever talked about him before, and maybe we won't again. Uh, please tell yeah, me you have a good story about the fucking Leprechaun. Well, it's Buddy Lee Parker who was uh, who had made his name famous. Uh, as really as a, a trainer in the power plant. Uh, I only remember the leprechaun coming out and running around the ring one time during the pay-per-view and leaving. This was a uh, this was a brainchild of Kevin Sullivan's because Col Sullivan was into all this, you know, crazy, the leprechaun, the horror movie, and things like that. Uh, and so that was, this was his brainchild of, of making uh, Buddy Lee Parker uh, the leprechaun. And I, I think what is is uh, probably uh, great about missing this is not that we missed uh, the Leprechaun, is that we missed seeing Joe Gomez on TV. I would have soon seen the Leprechaun uh, take a shit in the middle of the ring as I would see Joe Gomez wrestle. Um, Joe Gomez is uh, a friend of the show, but let's keep heaping shit on him. Is he really? Hypothetically. Hey, Joe, I love you, buddy. <laughs> Love it. Oh, I love it. Man, you, you backpedal better than a fucking cornerback. I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> hey, um, hypothetically speaking, who do you think Barbarian was more fond of, the Leprechaun or Joe Gomez? Uh, he probably liked Joe Gomez's long locks of brown hair. Joe Gomez. Although the, the Leprechaun could have could have uh, jerked him off without having to just having to reach up. You know, just he was kind of like. His eye was barbarian stick level, one would think. My goodness, what have we done? Uh, another time they shot him. No, 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 my round friend. What have you done? Not me. You're the one who started this uh, barbarian Tommy Young jerk me off bullshit. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I started this? Oh, yeah. Let me be clear. I was not in that locker room when that was said. <laughs> I just shared a story. Okay. Tommy Young, you come over here, you jack me off. It's coming up one way or another, brother. Ah, 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 ah. You pick, hand or asshole. Um, another time, they shot an angle in Orlando. Uh, right after the end of Nitro, Sting and Luger about to leave the park. Hall and Nash jump them, beat them up, and have a video camera shooting the scene, and they mock them while they're down. Any memories of these two bits where they're trying to do something with Hall and Nash separate from Hulk Hogan, where they take over the directors and the producers, where they attack the guys as they're leaving the park. Any memories of those or discussions as to why you thought that was necessary? They just tried to make Hall and Nash disruptors, or they, God, disruptors is a lousy term, 
but shit disturbers sure. uh, for the NWO, and they were trying to think of ways to do this. Uh, uh, again, as Sting and, and Luger are leaving the, the Disney property, getting their ass kicked, is probably not a good thing to do. That same right. show ends where Flair was supposed to be in the main event but didn't make it. And instead, there's a limo in the parking lot where Arn was looking for Flair who wasn't there. And it was sort of teased that the fourth man could be anybody. Now, of course, no chance Flair was ever probably seriously considered for the NWO. But do you remember why Flair didn't make it to the show? I do not remember that at all. Well, I don't um, remember that angle. I, I think it was just him missing a show. And y'all were trying to cover for him. But we hope that Flair doesn't miss any other shows. We know he's been hospitalized recently. Shout out and prayers for the Nature Boy. Uh, Obviously, our thoughts and prayers are with the family. No question. Uh, At one point, Sting and Luger uh, go into a vacant limo and find a wreath of flowers sending condolences to the death of WCW. Uh, And this is basically a copy of the time that Jim Cornette sent this same deal to Jim Hurd years ago. Was this a rib, do you think? Is this a callback to that funny? Yeah, I know it was. Absolutely it was. It was a callback to that, and we all had kind of a chuckle about that. Because, you know, some of the things that that Jim Cornette said about Jim Hurd and, and wrote about Jim Hurd is hilarious. Absolutely. Absolutely freaking hilarious. Uh, well, Have you seen the Grinch, the Grinch poem? Yes. In his book, it's wonderful. If you haven't yeah, seen thinking. that, you should go pick up Jim Cornette's book. He has lots of hilarity in that book. and some directed right at Mr. Hurd. Right. Uh, the fucking leprechaun isn't the only guy moving on up. Meltzer had this to say. Even though he's not, he's doing nothing but jobs, the folks at WCW are impressed with psychosis. Terry Taylor even called him one of the greatest workers in the history of wrestling. And the talk amongst the booking committee is that he's got more potential for the U.S. than Mysterio Jr., Although done correctly, he doesn't, because they're looking at Mysterio Jr.'s lack of size as a drawback, when in fact it's an attribute if used correctly. Uh, Tony, what do you think of Terry Taylor's assessment that psychosis is one of the greatest workers in the history of wrestling? Uh, I don't like using the term greatest in the history of wrestling, Conrad. Why's that? Go ahead. I was, I was opening that. I was throwing you that softball. No, listen, listen. Here's the deal. I didn't know if you were going to, like, let me bust on you for using that every single week, yeah, 19 no. times a week, or if you were going to pay homage to the GOAT, Mr. Ric Flair himself. No, no. Uh, look, uh, I don't know if Terry said that, but he probably did. Well, of and course he said it. And guess who he said it to? Yes, of course. I find it very odd that in the same sentence, Terry Taylor in quoted. one sentence, and then later on in the sentence it says, the talk among the booking committee. So who do you think reported to Dave Meltzer from the booking committee? Doesn't that kind of Doesn't that kind of, I don't, I don't have any facts to prove it, but that kind of says uh, Meltzer being the dumbass that he could be at times exposed Terry Taylor in yeah. one sentence. Well, I mean, I have it on good authority that Terry Taylor was actually the fourth stooge in the Three Stooges, but he wasn't good enough for that, so they cut him. Does Terry listen to our uh, podcast? Uh, if he does, he's going to punch me right in the dick one day. <laughs> he's going to go find Barbarian, and they're going to say, Conrad Thompson, <laughs> you come over here and you chuck Terry off. 
WCW canceled Baltimore and Norfolk on August 16th and 17th after too many wrestlers complained about the schedule for August. Uh, this is all directly from the Wrestling Observer. Again, would this decision have been made by the WWF, in your opinion? This is the no. same company that once upon a time ran a thousand fucking house shows in a year. No. House shows were, as you know, were the backbone of the business. But I can, I, you know, I, I don't think Eric, and he may have, but I don't think Eric would have uh, would have bowed to the wrestlers complaining. Eric didn't like house shows. Right. Eric, even in his book, said he thought we should be a television-only company and to hell with the house shows. Well, so Best Friender was a TV company, so, I mean, I get that, but right. a wrestling company has house shows. But Eric didn't didn't think we should have house shows. He thought we should go television only. He thought the house shows were the thing of the past. Yeah, now WCW is the thing of the past. I just want to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> I can see him just canceling house shows saying, yeah, okay, let's not go. Meltzer wrote this prior to the pay-per-view. He wrote, the Hogan Giant finish will be most interesting. Put it this way. The results of that match will determine a lot who has how much power. Uh, what do you think he's trying to say there cryptically? God, I, I, I don't. I hate to try to read the mind of that idiot. Uh, lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It feels like he's saying if the giant wins then who has the power? I mean, obviously, if Hogan wins, brother, we know yeah. this is where the power lies. But so, so is he trying to say if the Giant wins, that maybe Hall and Nash have the power? That, like, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. I feel it, like it, sometimes when people, and I love Dave Meltzer, let me just say, I know you disagree, but I, I'm a 20-year subscriber. No, no, but no. I don't love him. I do. You, you love it. You he's love right. it because he's never shit on you. Well, no, no. He's, yeah, I'm sure he's shit on me. No, no. Pick up a pick up a dirt sheet. See, he's never shit on you. Never shit on Conrad Thompson, but he's shit on Tony Schiavone. Sure. Well, so but but there's a lot of observation, <laughs> the observer, about the wrestling business that he has had that he's right on with. But there's a lot of I don't want to. There's a lot of what Dave Meltzer has said in the past that is just basically based on who talks to him and who doesn't. That's bullshit. That's not journalism. I feel like the finish will be most interesting. Put it this way, the results of that match will determine a lot who has how much power. It's very, it's like, um, hey, I'm going to, I feel like sometimes in wrestling people try to impress you with how much they know. And so they just right. want to speak cryptically like this, like they know something you don't know, and really they don't fucking know anything. Yeah. 
He could have been jerking off the Barbarian while he was writing this stuff. I really hope not. WCW was really ramping up the syndication during this time and doing numbers in the process. They have 6.88 million homes on 175 stations. As compared to WWF programming being viewed in only 4.2 million homes on 153 stations. Tony, you helped put together some of these syndicated shows. Did you guys or the Turner staff keep up with uh, those numbers? Was there like a scorecard internally as far as where you were compared to the WWF? No, there was not. And there should have been. Well, there should have been. There should. They should have let us know. Or maybe as a supervising producer, I should have investigated myself. Right. And let the staff know, hey, guys, we have more clearances than the WWF. We're doing great. We're in all these markets. But we never got that feedback. We just we just kept cranking out the shows and cranking out the shows each and every week and realizing that, in effect, that these shows had no impact on our company as far as a creative was concerned. It, when, there was, when there was an angle, and I, and I always bitched about this, when there was an angle in the Nitro Thunder days, there was never an angle done on Worldwide. And I, I, had, I had even told Eric this and, and Craig Leathers this. I said, why don't we do an angle on a worldwide taping and play it back on a nitro? Right. So the people will think, well, I got to see that. I got to see worldwide. But we never did that. The only thing that only thing that nitro basically or only thing that the syndicated shows basically became were, were recaps with some matches, some job guy matches, basically from from Disney or then later on Universal Studios. They had no bearing on our product as far as having to keep up with the storyline. And that, that was wrong. And as you were just telling me there, it was really wrong because we had a lot of stations. Yeah. And, and it's worth mentioning that the WWF shows, you know, as we were explaining, they covered all the angles. You know, their syndicated stuff was pushing whatever their top stuff was. The, the, those matches didn't exist in a vacuum kind of the way they did in WCW. Things are really good here. Uh, just a year away from 95, uh, all of a sudden, you know, ratings are up, and now show attendance is up. You guys are actually running very profitable house shows. But oddly enough, pay-per-view is down a little. Tony, do you have a theory as to why that may have been? I don't have a theory. I know why that's been, Conrad. What's that? We were giving everything away for free on Nitro. Yep. Sorry to argue. Thunder. Yeah, we were. Why... Why would you buy the pay-per-view at $39.95 or whatever the price point was in the mid-90s when you could see something free the next night on TNT? And you could have the recap of all the angles. And why would you do that? Everything was given away. The most important thing to watch for us was Nitro. And that was more important than watching the pay-per-view. And that was wrong. And we, and of course, we're Monday morning quarterbacking here. Had we, had we made the, you know, you got to see the pay per view. No, you got to see Nitro. Had we had, you got to see the pay per view, we probably would have had more buy rates. In New York, the concrete jungle where dreams are made of, there's nothing you can't do. That's right, there's nothing you can't do in the Big Apple. That's why we are bringing Preacher's Dirty Dozen to New York City. And it's going to be Saturday afternoon right before NXT. Now all you have to do is jump onto Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle and make sure that you are one of the 12 that get to hang out with Bruce and Conrad right before NXT, have a couple of drinks,
friends, have some laughs. It is going to be a time you'll never forget. All the information, once again, is going to be on Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Make sure you're a part of Bridger's Dirty Dozen in the Big Apple. New York City. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard's live. I thought it was so worth it. Something to wrestle with live show is even better in person. The show is really funny. Hey, New York. Something to wrestle with live is coming to you Sunday, August 20th at the Gramercy Theater at 12.30 p.m. I recommend coming to any live show. I haven't laughed that hard in a while. The first show on Saturday sold out, so we added a second on Sunday. Come see Bruce and Conrad live and in living color, baby. You never know what they're going to say. You never know what surprises may be in store. And they're going to talk about things that they can't talk about in the air. You're not going to want to miss this show. It was so great. It was a great experience. August 20th, 2017, at the Gramercy Theater in New York, New York. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Christian Live. We had a really good time. Well, this is essentially the start of the NWO. It's also basically the beginning of the end. As the FTC had approved the Turner Time Warner merger, uh, how was this news received at the time? Of course, we know how it would wind up. But here in, you know, late summer, uh, of 96. Do you guys give any sort of second thought as to how this is going to change the culture of the company? I think we're all concerned about it. I, well, I know we're all concerned about it. You know, uh, the one thing is that I have found through my years of, of working not only in, in wrestling but in radio is that uh, a lot of times you can uh, bust your ass and, and try to get the job done and there are things that happen above you that you have no, uh, that you have, that have that impact your job, and you have no decision in. Right. So there was a concern that we. I always thought, and I mentioned on this program before that I always knew that, that that there was an end to WCW eventually. It wasn't going to last forever. Turner Broadcasting. We just milked it. Thank God for Eric Bischoff and. And some of the efforts that he made, we milked, we milked it as long as we could. Uh, because, it, listen, it wasn't going anywhere before he took over. Yeah, and, and I feel like we should mention here, although we're being critical of this show and it basically being the Eric Bischoff show, and we're going to continue to do that for the rest of the program, Bischoff is responsible for WCW getting to this next level, and he doesn't do, he doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves for the impact he had on the business. Would you agree with that? No. Yeah, but, and the reason is that people just want to shit on the work that he did. Sure. He made some mistakes, as, as people are going to do. Everybody does. Goodness. Yeah, but he made some mistakes that you certainly see on TV and that were very high-profile m- mistakes against, you know, a, a competitor who's probably more cutthroat than anybody that we've ever met in our lives. Um, so, but, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh now I've lost my train of thought. You were interrupting. What was I saying? Well, that's cool. Before we get to the show, we should mention that a, that a major blackout happened on the West Coast this Saturday. There were nine states that had trouble ordering the pay-per-view, and this couldn't have been avoided or prevented in any way on the WCW side. It happened just about an hour before the show. Did you guys know that this was an issue that day, or was it just the talk of the office the next week? It was kind of the, the talk of the office the next week. So live, when you're doing it, you have no idea that yeah. nine states are having trouble seeing you. We don't at the announce table. Okay. I just 
trying to keep people sober. I love you for that. Actually, you weren't even trying. Roll title now. Allegedly, <laughs> even though Hogan appeared on the show, this deal was structured where he didn't get his usual 25% cut from the show, which was his typical pay-per-view deal. Uh, that show did 220,000 buys. It's down from 250,000 the month prior where he turned heel in July. Were you guys disappointed with that number, or considering the blackout, were you pleased? We were disappointed with the number. I mean, you can you can blame any anybody sure. you want to blame on bad buy rates. And sometimes I just thought that things like a blackout was uh, was a way to bl- to put to blame some something else. Uh, Meltzer yeah. said the the audience was around five thousand, not the three hundred thousand that Heenan said on the broadcast. What, what would you peg the crowd attendance at that day? Uh, five thousand sounds about looks and sounds about right. Three hundred thousand is what Heenan said. Yeah, he said on the broadcast there were three hundred thousand people amongst the sea of heads. There there weren't three hundred thousand. You couldn't put three hundred thousand people in Sturgis. Well, you could probably fit that many. Never mind. Uh, Hogwild, let's talk about the Observer fan poll. 65 votes, uh, so 43.6% thumbs up, 36.9% thumbs down, and 19.5% thumbs in the middle. What say you, Tony? Thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs in the middle? Thumbs in the middle. Liked a lot of the matches. Liked the way the event opened. Really liked the Benoit uh, match with, of course, the Iceman. Liked the Harlem Heat match against the uh, Steiners. And then it kind of went down from there. Best match poll uh, was Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko in the Observer. That's what the readers thought, and they thought the worst was Hulk Hogan and the Giant. Do you agree with those two assessments? Yes, I do. Uh, this is directly from the Observer. Savage wasn't there at all. It was actually explained on Nitro the week before that Savage had traded his interview time on this pay-per-view for a future title shot. The feeling was that if Savage was there, he'd have to attack Hogan, and if security stopped him, it would make the rest of the show where security wasn't going to stop a million run-ins be ridiculous. In addition, if Savage were to attack Hogan before the match, it would risk turning Hogan babyface. Tony, in hindsight, and I know we always talk about that being 2020 here on the show, wouldn't you try to figure out a way to feature one of your biggest stars in the Macho Man on this stage? He should have been featured in every big thing that we did. Yeah. I absolutely agree. It's a weird deal, and it makes me think there's more that doesn't work for me, brother. At play, but we'll get there. Or, or it could have been, and I, and I, you know, I mean that that sounds like somebody who doesn't like Hogan. Uh, but maybe the Macho Man didn't want to come to to search. Maybe he had no place for it. Maybe he didn't he didn't want to be out there. Well, he could have just got fucked up for Bobby Heenan at the desk. <laughs> I thought nobody's going to stop him. All right, let's talk about the matches. You guys did a series of matches on WCW Saturday night, which was kind of like your free-for-all. The WWF was doing a 30-minute pre-preview uh, pre before their pay-per-views just to get last-minute buys, and you guys are doing that. And since it's Saturday, you're using your own WCW Saturday night as a live lead-in, which is kind of cool. You hadn't done a lot of live stuff on Saturday night, so this was a good opportunity. What did you think about the idea, and, and how long of a day did it make for you? Well, it made a very long day for me. I At, at the time, I thought it was a pretty good idea, but the matches ended up being so short, it ended up being a shitty idea. It, it seemed like we did more of throwing out matches. Uh, Just we for had a lot of guys. What's that? Just for the sake of doing it. Yeah, we, we had a lot of guys, so they wanted to make sure they worked, I guess, you know, because we were moving on 
uh, on to Denver. Uh, but it, it just seemed to me that the matches, I always thought, I, I had an idea years ago, and I thought it worked quite well, where I thought pregame shows should be done in a bar where fans are getting around, getting ready to watch the event, or done at people's houses where the families all gathered around the TV, can't wait for it to start. And we did a show like that one time uh, that I kind of produced where I, we brought Teddy Long here to our house, and Teddy interviewed some of our neighbors who were at our house ready to watch a pay-per-view. What pay-per-view uh, was that? I can't remember which one it was. If you know what that was, please link it to us. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday, or on Twitter at WHW Monday. We would love to see that. Let's run through the matches right fast. There's a boatload to get through. Uh, Public Enemy beat Dick Slater and Mike Enos in just under four minutes when Rocco pinned Enos for a quarter star. Uh, Conan pinned Chavo Guerrero Jr. in about four and a half minutes uh, with a Splash Mountain. Conan said afterwards in a promo that he's patterning, uh, patterning, easy for me to say, uh, his career after Hulk Hogan, star in three quarters. The Nasty Boys beat High Voltage in three and a half minutes when Knobs pinned King Chaos. And then the Nasty Boys did a promo saying they were neutral for now in this WCW versus NWO feud. Quarter star there. Alex Wright pinned Bobby Eaton with a drop kick off the top rope in 30 seconds. That got a dud rating. Mm. Uh, I can't believe Bobby Eaton in 30 seconds. That seems like a wasted opportunity. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, Ming, and the Barbarian beat Jim Powers, Mark Starr, and Joe Gomez. Uh, in three minutes and six seconds, when Ming pinned Star after a thrust kick. Hypothetically, would you have liked to have seen the Barbarian pin Joe Gomez here? Joe Gomez. Absolutely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void by law. terms and conditions. Plus. Uh, I would like to see that. I would like to see him stomp Joe Gomez's ass to the mat. <laughs> does, does, does Joe listen to our show? He does, doesn't he? Well, what's the issue with Joe? <laughs> Joe was uh, Joe was just easy to pick on. Oh, okay. He, he well, was easy to pick on. He runs I South Florida him. now, so um, unless you want to unless you want to sleep with the fishes, let's say some nice things about him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Joe I'm, was a. I'm giving you the Iggy right here. He's connected. Let's be nice. Okay. Love you, Joe. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yes, uh, he is. I think a lot of him. I do, too. Yeah. And, you know, you know, throughout time, throughout time in pro wrestling, there were a lot of great guys who were shitty workers. And Joe Gomez was not one of them. He was screwed over and held down by WCW and the man. He clearly could have reached the heights of Virgil. Yes. Yes, he could have. 
I'm just saying, if they can make Mongo McMichael a four horseman and they can put yeah. or they can put Vincent in the NWO, yeah. then goddamn yeah. it, Joe Gomez deserves his opportunity. And I won't let you sit here and disparage the good goddamn name of Joe Gomez. Okay. Tony Giovanni. <laughs> Uh, David Taylor subbing for psychosis. He's out of action for the rest of the month with a dislocated elbow. Pinned just because he was the greatest wrestler in the history of wrestling. He is. I yeah. just have <laughs> pinned JL in two and a half minutes using the tights. And this is supposed to be the beginning of a psychosis singles push. But, of course, he's not there. It gets one star. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the show here. We've got Diamond Dallas Page pinning the Renegade in 53 seconds with the Diamond Cutter. Um, I don't know when we're going to talk about this again, so let me just fit it in here. And around this same time, Meltzer wrote in The Observer, Page wants to do a deal where he would be the Stevie Richards flunky to Ric Flair, but Flair said not to be so hot on the idea. Uh, Flair would, in that scenario, be Page's benefactor, since they started saying a benefactor storyline with no idea where they were going with it. Do you remember this pitch, that JDP wanted to be a flunky for Flair? Yeah, I, I remember this. I, I remember DDP coming up with this idea, but I I also remember DDP coming up with a hundred ideas. Right. He thought he thought about his character and thought about how he could better himself all the time. So this was nothing new. It really is a testament to to what progress DDP makes in a year, because right here we're in August of '96, and he's not even on the dog on pay per view. And by August of 97, he would have main evented a pay-per-view. So props to DDP for sticking to it. Uh, Arn Anderson would pin Hugh Morris in 40 seconds with a DDT, and then the Dungeon of Doom attacked Anderson, but the horseman made the save. That gets a dud, uh, and that kind of brings the TBS version of the show to a close. They actually keep the pay-per-view feed going until the first match is in the ring, and then you say goodbye to TBS. Overall, do you think that that helped the pay-per-view with last-minute buys? Did you think that was a good strategy? Uh, well, because TBS had, at one time, it was the number one show, and we got free exposure for the pay-per-view. It was the right thing to do to have our show promote the pay-per-view. Whether it was what right to have all these matches or not, I don't think so. Because if you're running down all these matches, the longest match you got is four minutes. And, and I know sometimes you and I will yawn at a, about a match that goes 16 uh, to 20 minutes. But you got to have, to be able to, to have a, a competitive match and to tell somewhat of a story, you got to be able to go more than four minutes. And to run Arn Anderson out there in 40 seconds and Bob Eaton in 30 seconds, two of the greatest workers, what the fuck are we doing? Well, the um, the show starts with a video of you saying that this is more than just a machine between your legs. Normally, I would have a smart-ass comment here, Tony. I'm going to lay out. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I, I would come up with, thinking about Klondike Bill, I would come up Klondike would have rubbed that old beard and he said, Tony, Tony, I, you know, I'd like to see a mach machine between some of the legs of some of the Nitro Girls and just pull the machine out and then be able to sniff it and take it home with me. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, you guys did a helicopter shot to open this uh, pay-per-view, and, and you, you do it a few times through the show, and it just feels like, again, one of those deals where the person who's making the decision isn't necessarily footing the bill. Do you have an idea 
how much it costs to use a helicopter like this for production purposes. Oh my God! No, I no. You know what? I, you know what I need to do, Conrad? I need to talk to David Crockett. He knew all that. He he always booked these things. He knew how much it costs. We're going to get David Crockett to come to one of our live shows the next time we do one in, in the North Carolina, South Carolina, somewhere in the Mid-Atlantic yeah. Territory. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, we also destroyed a motorcycle that day. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we had uh, staging that, you know, that normally that you wouldn't have. We had fucking fireworks and a helicopter. And the helicopter, I'll guarantee you the helicopter was at minimum, at minimum, Five grand. Oh, double that. Easy. Hey, so really? one of the places you guys didn't spare any expense was in the wardrobe. Let's talk about what you fucks were wearing. Uh, oh. Dusty Rhodes has his blue jeans cut into shorts. He's cut the sleeves off of his denim shirt, too. And he has on the Adrian Adonis motorcycle hat and cowboy boots. Somehow, Dusty Rhodes still pulls this off. He doesn't look like he's one of the people from People of Walmart. Uh, he actually looks kind of cool. Meanwhile, you're rocking slacks, a denim vest, the same goofy leather hat that Dusty can pull off, and for some reason, you have a hilariously bad tattoo. You look like a middle-aged village people person. Um, wasn't this your job as a producer to make sure you didn't look like you? <laughs> I mean, this feels like just a failure on your part. What was the tattoo? When did you get it? Why did you get it? And why that one? Well, I got it because I always wanted a tattoo. Always. And I never really had the courage to get one because I knew how much shit Lois would give me about having a tattoo. So I went down through downtown searches and saw they had all these had tattoos that they would airbrush on you. And I, I got one uh, thinking it was cool and wore it around a couple of days there. Um, and then had it to where it would it would show on me, but we it was it was the theme of the thing, Conrad. It was, it was the theme of the show. You understand? So did you approve this wardrobe for Dusty, or I mean, how does that go? No, no. See, you 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 again. I don't I don't approve announcers. I didn't approve announcer wardrobes. What were you producing besides horrible commentary and vodka bottles? You know what you are? I'm a shit disturber. Yeah, I know you're a fucking bully. Oh, yeah, okay. B-U-L-L-Y is what you are. Well, hey, you okay. keep it up. and Don't even lie to me. I'm just saying. It's coming out one way or another, brother. Easy way or hard way. So you managed to call the main event here the most important world title match in the history of professional wrestling. How would you describe that same match today, Tony? Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't important, but it was important in the in the context of WCW trying to keep the world title away from the NWO. Okay, okay, right? all right. When I say how would you describe it today, that means be funny and foul. So let's try again. You managed to call the main event quote the most important world title match in the history of professional wrestling. How would you describe it today, Tony? Just another turd for the gold title. Thank you. Uh, first matchup, we've got Rey Mysterio Jr. pinning Ultimo Dragon in about 11 and a half minutes. They uh, managed to go ahead and get over the Cruiserweight title here, at least to me. I thought this was a phenomenal match. Meltzer agreed. It got three and three-quarter stars. 
Dragon is billed as the ultimate dragon here, and the only way the fans in the crowd know that Ultimo is the heel is that Sonny Ono was with him. Um, the fans sent USA during this match, which makes total fucking sense. Uh, so kudos to Sturgis. Shout out to you guys. You're the best. Uh, and then it, I thought it was an awesome match. If you're into this type of wrestling, and I know you've been critical of this in the past, Tony, I thought this had all the high spots you'd hope for. And it's worth mentioning that you guys put this over as being the first match these guys have had against each other. They've tagged before, but never actually been, you know, in opposite corners. And keep in mind, Ray's just 21 here and already considered the human highlight reel. Uh, one spectacular move after another. He hits a hurricane runner for the pin. I loved it. What did you think of this match, Tony, watching it back 21 years later? Yeah, I loved it, too. And, and I know I've, I've heaped some shit on luchadors before, but... Basically, what I got lost in was Luchador six-man tag team matches. Right. You know, one-on-one match is with Ray, and and all that he could do was was sensational. Uh, And this came right out of him being thrown into the uh, the uh, as a lawn dart into the side of uh, one of the Disney trucks or whatever. Uh, But I I also think if you watch this match, and and I watched it actually, I I ended up watching it, and I watched half of it again recently. Ray, of course, had a lot of knee injuries uh, because of all the high-flying stuff, crazy stuff that he would do. And I think what you're seeing on this match is uh, the beginning of maybe his knee his knee problems. You need to watch it closely. But he, I think the limping around that he was doing during this match was a shoot. Well, he certainly had his fair share, and he's still doing his thing now. Um Amazing. It was some fun stuff here on the program. Dusty Rhodes commentary never gets old for me. During this match, he called Ray, Ray Mysterious Jr., and he referred to Sonny Ono as a snake and a rice patty. I feel like when anybody else does that, then people are riding in the streets, but when Dusty does it, it's just cool. And he gets away with his mind. Yeah, Dusty can mispronounce anything and say anything that was politically incorrect, and I know what was politically incorrect now is different than today's uh, in 2017. But he could mispronounce anything, and it was funny the way he mispronounced things. Yeah, I mean, anybody else would be taken to the woodshed, but with Dusty, yeah. it's just part of his charm. He just pulls it off. Exactly. Uh, speaking of pulling it off, uh, Scott Norton pulled off a victory over Ice Train. Uh, he won by submission using a Fujiwara armbar. I'd like to point out that Scott Norton and Ice Train were on the pay-per-view. Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson are not. Uh, Train would come out with his shoulder all taped up from an angle where the Giant had beat him up. Uh, That that happened earlier in the show. And Norton worked on the arm the entire match. Meltzer gave it one star. Um, Were any of the Nitro girls particularly fond of Ice Train? Uh, You really put me on the spot with this bullshit, don't you? I'm just asking a question. I I don't know. What did you hear? Did you hear that maybe that Ice Train was... And had sex with Kimberly? <laughs> yeah, every now and again, I just throw something out there vague, not knowing if you're going to take the bait, and there you did. So since you brought it up, um, Ice Train has been linked together with Kimberly, but uh-huh. he, he's not exactly alone in that association. No. Do I have that right? No, Giant was been associated with her, too. And... Eric Bischoff has been associated with her, too. That was a rumor back then. Okay. Do you believe that when not one name gets leaked out there, like this guy, like that girl, 
but it's mm-hmm. multiple guys, and the husband is there, and not right. necessarily protesting. Maybe he is protesting. You know, look, I always thought the giant was big enough if he wanted to get some pussy, what could the husband do? If the, if the woman well, he should have given him a diamond cutter. I mean, <laughs> everybody knows that that's the end. I guess what I'm getting to is one of these critiques is going to get out there that, that I said that Ice Train was fucking Kimberly. You said that. I said that was a rumor back then. Okay. Was there a rumor that DDP not only knew about these indiscretions, but he was okay with it? Yes. And maybe even present? Uh, I didn't hear present as much as I heard okay with it. I guess my question is, do you think the DDP was in the corner doing some stretches and a little self-high-five action. <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying. Okay. I love him. Move on. All right, let's see. Mean Gene is rocking a denim vest here, and we get Jimmy Hart uh, in a promo plugging the Hogwild denim vest and T-shirt. Who was buying this shit, and whose idea was it to not sell tickets but to sell denim vests instead? Uh, this was the marketing department wanting to come up with a – a little plug here, and no one was buying that shit. No, if you if you actually have a Hogwild denim vest or T-shirt, please tweet us. Please, uh, yeah. At one day, we would love to see this, and I need to know exactly what Goodwill store you got it from. All right, next up, we've got Medusa pinning Bull Nakano. It goes about five minutes, and this is a biker match, so it's bike versus bike. And Nakano attacks Medusa with the nunchucks at the bell, and this gives Dusty a hilarious chance to say nunchucks several times and right. pronounce the town as Stir Gus. you got to see this. This is awesome. And this is the match where I noticed that Hannon's impression of Vince McMahon was taken to another level. And in my opinion, probably the first sign of his drinking, he repeatedly says, she got her. No, she didn't. Uh, and it got so over the top that you actually had to tell him to stop on the air. Yeah, um, I thought that. Listen, I thought at that point. Uh, again, I'll go back to what I what what I recall happening that day. I didn't realize that Heenan was was getting inebriated until the Steiner match, and then it really hit home with me on the Flair match with Eddie Guerrero. This time, I thought Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. That, and of course, I always told Bobby, stop on the air. Gorilla Monsoon said, would you stop? Uh, I, I thought this was funny. I thought this was entertaining. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get a – I don't think that this was a part of the so-called okay. assumed inebriation. The crowd was almost as confused as Bobby here. Uh, they're chanting Harley because they knew Medusa was the baby face because she rode American while Nakano had a Japanese bike. But the finish of the match was fucked. Nakano throws a suplex and holds it for the pin, but Medusa got her shoulder up. But the referee didn't make a clear distinction, and Bull stands up like she won. So then Sonny threatens to use the sledgehammer, and Medusa does what you're supposed to do when a guy has a sledgehammer and is about to destroy your bike, throw dirt at him. 
Uh, eventually, she takes the sledgehammer and does her best to bash in Bull's bike. It's an underwhelming spectacle, to say the least, but I don't say that's Medusa's fault. This is probably something that sounded good on paper, but it was a damn miss. Um, or at least that's my point. It's a star and a half uh, in The Observer, and, and for what it's worth, I feel like we should mention here that Bull and Medusa are super talented and have had great matches, but this gimmick in this match kind of sucks, and this crowd is probably not the right crowd for their work. Is that fair to say, Tony? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly because those two had had some, some great matches together. Uh, I liked, though... I mean, again, I go back to, God, we're, we're destroying someone's bike here. Uh, and how much is that going to cost us and our budget? But I like seeing Medusa ride that hog into uh, the ring. Oh. <laughs> Didn't you? I mean, I've never, I've never really uh, driven uh, a Harley before. But I would have minded me being on the back of the Harley with her. Wait, 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 wait. You would like to ride bitch with Medusa on a bike? Ride what? Well, ride bitch is is street talk for riding in the back of a bike. Oh, if that would have, well, then yes, I would have wanted to ride bitch with Medusa. So you and what you're saying is you and Medusa, you would like to ride the same hog as Medusa. Yeah. Did Medusa ever date Tom Zane? <laughs> I don't know. We, we need to ask her something. These are the questions we need to know. We see a coffee serve spot here with the Steiners working on laptops. Rick Steiner here is basically what Bruce Pritchard looks like whenever we record a podcast. So <laughs> if you've not seen this, this is phenomenal. You should go look for it. Uh, next up, we've got Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko. These guys go for near 27 minutes. Uh, a couple minutes into the second overtime uh, is when we get the victory from Chris Benoit. Dave wrote, from a technical standpoint, this was as good a match as you'll ever see in the United States. They do a 20-minute uh, time limit draw, and then they announce a five-minute overtime, and the crowd cheers. But then when they do another draw and announce a third overtime, the crowd booed it hard. Eventually, a woman tries to interfere, and Malenko goes after her. This allows Benoit to use a schoolboy holding the tights and the ropes for the pin. David Wright, in another setting with a different finish, it would have been a match of the year candidate, four and a quarter stars. What do you think, Tony? Is this the best match in front of the worst crowd of the year? Uh, it is the best match on the card by far, and Dave is right here, as good as matches you'll see in the U.S., uh, but it went too long. Right. As you know, I love baseball, but by the 12th inning, I've had enough of it. Sure. Uh, and you can say the same thing about wrestling here. You don't need another overtime. We've seen your spots. You've done great work. You've sold marvelously for each other. You're tremendous workers. Next. Especially with this crowd. You know, if this yeah, was an right. MPW crowd or a Ring yeah. of Honor crowd or even an NXT crowd, then they would have been into every minute of it and chanting fight forever. But in front of a bunch of drunk bikers who are vaguely familiar with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, probably not the time to do this. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of things that weren't well-timed or thought out, the Harlem Heat were here. Uh, Booker mm -hmm. T has gone on record as saying he believes that they were the only two black folks in the entire county. Um, that's, not, that's not true. It was a joke, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was a joke. Uh, they, you, you actually, when we... Uh, if you, if, when we panned the crowd, there were some black people on bike on bikes there. 
this feels like a great time to mention, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and we're about to talk about some silly racism here, and I realize that that comes off kind of funky because we're a couple of hillbilly rednecks on a wrestling podcast here. Right. But obviously, uh, I'm embarrassed by what happened this past weekend in Virginia. I'm sure you've seen some of that, Tony. Well, I'm embarrassed uh, uh, ten times more than you are because Charlottesville is 30 miles from my hometown. And it's a shame that so much of the nation thinks that because you and I have these accents and like the things we like, that we may be somehow associated with that. I mean, it's it's a horrible scene. It's it's the worst of everything, and it's embarrassing for America and for the South and for, I don't know, man. I don't know how we got on this, but I just felt like since we're about to talk about Harlem Heat and maybe a questionable position that we ought to at least address the the stupid shit that happened over the weekend and send our condolences to everyone involved and I, mean, I don't know what else to say there. Tony, would you like to say anything? Well, I'd just like to say this, that we are all Americans. Why can't we get along and just enjoy things? On, on my personal Facebook feed, when uh, there are recipes and there are funny things that people post, but when they start posting their political diatribe, I have no time for it. Now, this, 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 let's all just freaking get along because we can. We absolutely can. You know, I can. We can talk about how stupid the protest was and, and all of the all of the demonstrations and just all of all of that. But my goodness, when you start mowing people down, that's. If you have a dumbass opinion, sometimes it's better if you keep it to yourself. But yep. my goodness, when when we're hurting other people, we've taken it too far. I agree. Um, Harlem Heat were in danger. Prentice <laughs> Sturgis, uh, not not because they're black, but because they're in the ring with the Steiner brothers, and the Steiner brothers are suplexing these dudes like nobody's business. They go nearly 18 minutes. There's all kinds of heat from the crowd. Uh, the Steiners come out to almost no reaction, but when the Harlem Heat come out, the crowd decides they're all for the Steiners, and in a big way, the Harlem Heat masterfully play into this crowd. The bikers start revving up their engines, and this is the most heated match on the show so far. Um, the, the Steiners are playing into it and throwing tons of suplexes to big reactions. It's a pretty fun match. Uh, Meltzer would write, Heat got the best heat on the show for all the wrong reasons. I guess those bikers don't like the colored folks. Clearly, he's trying to be funny and make a lot of the situation. But, uh, wow, what a match this was. Now, the finish is what kind of ruined it for me because both Parker and Sherry throw powder, and they hit a member of each team, and then Parker breaks his cane over Scott, and Harlem Heat gets a pin. Uh, the crowd starts to throw a lot of stuff at the ring at this screw job finish, and there's been lots of talk that um, – Guys were throwing gravel at the Harlem Heat, uh, two two and three-quarter stars. Did you remember any sort of feedback or talk or discussion about perceived racism from the crowd or anything like that? Not, no, not at all. Uh, there was, and I, I alluded to this earlier, Conrad, there there had been rocks being thrown all throughout the night. Right. So I... I don't remember it being more of that thrown during the uh, the Harlem Heat match. Uh, again, you know, there's there's perceived racism because of bikers. Right. 
and and that's probably the wrong thing to do. Well, let me ask you this: Why do you think um, the the fans were revving their engines so much in this match more so than the others? You don't believe that's because of that? I I didn't notice that they were revving their and I, I'm going to I'm not playing stupid here. I didn't notice. I I thought they revved their engines all night. Well, it felt like it was bigger here okay. in the early part of the match, and maybe that's just my opinion. Let me just ask this a different way. Do you remember seeing racism in wrestling? Not like funny angles, not like when you sent Harlem Heat out in chains. We've talked about that before and how ridiculous it was and nobody was thinking about it and blah, blah, blah. But I mean from fans. Like, was there ever a situation where you remember seeing it from the fan side and thinking, oh, shit, we got to get this under control? Uh, I Fans would always say unkind things to wrestlers whether they were white or black. And sure. I, I heard fans, you know, say very uh, racial things to wrestlers before. Uh, but not to the point to where I thought there would be a riot or anything like right. that. Right, not to an unsafe level, just a disrespectful right. piece just, of shit. Just, just, yeah. just wrestlers being big mouths. I mean, I'm sorry, wrestling fans being big mouth, obnoxious people that they can be at times. Sure. And, you know, that's... Hell, that's not only in, in wrestling now. It's in all sports. Right. My goodness. You know, and we are both big fans of college football. Oh, and gosh. I yeah. college football, and you're a big Alabama fan. But do you know that there is nothing, nothing that comes close to an obnoxious college football fan? Nothing. No, there's no, no uh, obnoxious baseball fans, obnoxious uh Basketball fans, obnoxious NASCAR fans, nothing comes close to obnoxious college football fans. And I don't I don't know why that is. Because we're talking about kids who are not paid being played as playing a sport. Right. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but it's just uh, of all the stuff that I've covered throughout my years, nothing is as brutal as what you hear. Uh, and a lot of it comes from the students themselves, too. Sure. But... Uh, yeah, it's just anyway. Well, let's hey, let's just try getting along. How's that? I agree. And let's right. keep our violence to uh, pro wrestling. Yeah, you know. Hey, well, I will say for this match, one of my favorite moments of the entire night was when Sherry was saying something, and Rick Steiner said, "Shut up, bitch!" And you could hear it pretty clearly, and it was funny, and the fans really reacted to it. It was funny. It was Mike yeah. Will. It got a reaction. Uh, the signers have just signed the new deal here. Do you remember hearing that they were considering their options, and were, was there ever any sort of fear that they may have left? Yeah, I, there was a big fear that they were going to leave. Next, I think there was any question. Next up, we have a cutaway package of the WCW stars riding in the circus as a big group, both baby faces and heels together, and they're stopping along the way to sign autographs. Uh, and there's tons of footage of Bischoff on his bike here. Does this start to feel like a vanity project at this point to you? No, it does not. It feels like uh, producers sticking those nose, nose up Eric's ass. Sure. Project. That's what it feels like. Next up, we got... It was way too long, and I should have been on the back riding bitch for Medusa from the Mall of America. I feel like that needs to be a t-shirt. This is yeah. Speaking of t-shirts, you can check out all the fine offerings over at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And we've got some really slick ones right now. We've got the hard-to-beat shirt, and my new favorite, it's an airbrush turd. 
It's Tony and Tom. What happened when? If you're familiar with the old Redneck Riviera Beach trips, maybe you went to Spring Break 99 down to PCP. Well, get you some of this Tony and Tom airbrush love. Of course, the hottest shirt over there right now, Damn, I'm Good. I've been blown up by Bill's Glass Bottom Boat Ride Tours this summer. Tons of shirts out there for that. Uh, catch all of this right now at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And uh, when you call Tony Schiavone, uh, he's actually, actually, I guess Tony Schiavone is going to call you. Uh, you can do what Tony and I have been doing for the last week. Uh, behind the scenes, Tony has called me, and I would miss him. He'd leave me a voicemail, and I would do the same. I'd have to leave him a voicemail. What did those voicemails sound like over the last week, Tony? Beep. Tommy Young. <laughs> Beep. This is the Barbarian. Jerk me off, Tommy Young. Call me back on red. Click. There you go. So if you would like to have your own Tommy Young exchange with Tony Schiavone, it's simple. Go to ProWrestlingTeams.com forward slash WHW. Pick up a shirt. You'd be glad you I, need to, I need to say something here because I knew you wouldn't say it. I knew because I, I know how you are. But there's a brand new shirt you got to check out. Okay? It's called the Podfather shirt. Okay? The Podfather. As in Godfather, the Podfather. And my likeness is not on the shirt. <laughs> One of the two of us has their likeness on that shirt. It is a and pretty badass shirt. It is a fun shirt. Oh, it's tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. It's not as fun we as all the know, We all know who the Podfather is. <laughs> we all know who he is. Well, He's the bully among us. Hey, hey. Tony Schiavone. Uh, next up, we've got Ric Flair pinning Eddie Guerrero in about 14 minutes. He retains the U.S. title here. The fans are pretty into Flair. He's probably one of the only guys they're familiar with. Uh, after Guerrero hit the frog splash, he sold it as if his knee had gone out. Flair put on the figure four, and woman holds on for added leverage, and Guerrero passes out from the pain. Three and a half stars. Typical Flair match, but a really good showing from Eddie Guerrero. I'm sure Flair's probably not tickled to be in the U.S. title match, but it really gives a lot of rub to Eddie Guerrero in a loss here. It legitimizes him to go and have this quality of a match with Ric Flair in front of an audience that at that point may not have been very aware of the superstar caliber that Eddie Guerrero possessed. Would you agree with that? I would agree with all that, absolutely. Uh, this was another Bobby Heenan giveaway here in this match for me. It, Bobby said something like, Ric Flair is mentally sharper than Eddie. And there was like a long pregnant pause, and then he says, Guerrero. 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 Yeah, he sounded like Foster Brooks here saying Guerrero. And if you'll if you'll listen to it, after he said that, you heard you heard Dream go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at least somebody was listening to the commentary besides yeah. you, right? <laughs> Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are up next, and they beat Sting and Lex Luger in about 14 and a half minutes. Meltzer was disappointed in this. He wrote, after all the hype, this match didn't have much heat, wasn't very intense, and the announcers, after building it up so big, um, dropped the ball and making it seem important. Of course we did. Sting was in most of the way, taking a pounding, but it really wasn't that good. Finally, he made the hot tag. Uh, Sting had Nash and the Scorpion on the floor, while Luger put Hall up in the rack. Hall's legs knocked down Nick Patrick, who clumsily fell, clipping Luger's knee, and Hall fell on top while Patrick fast-counted him 
the idea for the finish was clever, but the execution of it looked terrible. Uh, star and a half. What did you think? I thought it had decent heat. I liked it a lot better than Dave Meltzer did. Yeah, I did too. And uh, Meltzer was was uh, was wrong when he said Nick Patrick, who clumsily fell. Nick Patrick's was turning. He tried to take him out. Yeah, because he was turning heel here. Right. So he didn't clumsily fall and inadvertently take him out. So he missed that one. Huh? He missed it. You got to think about too. You know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are part of the NWO, the talk of the wrestling business at that point. Sting and Lex Luger are the stalwarts of WCW. They've been there from seemingly the beginning, and this feels like a really big time match. So, a star and a half, I thought, was kind of low. Maybe it didn't have all the technical stuff that Meltzer enjoys, but as far as just telling the story and the heat, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I do too, and it probably would have gotten better stars. Had the announcers not dropped the ball. Well, one of them was drunk. One of them called Ray Mysterious. Uh, you know, I mean, and and then there's you. You know, uh, it came out around this time that Horace Boulder, the nephew of Hulk Hogan, had actually signed a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar deal that's annually, with no plans of being used. And Lanny Poffo had a similar deal as a favor to Randy Savage. Uh, and on this Hog Wild show, we see Ed Leslie, the former Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake, make his last appearance for several months. Tony, all three of these guys are on buddy deals being paid for nothing, aren't they? Of course they, of course they are. But when you think about we piss away all this money for a helicopter and pyro and to destroy limousines and destroy a, uh, a uh, Japanese uh, motorcycle, why not give it to some people where they can make a living for themselves? Well, if oh, you're gonna piss away, listen. If you're gonna piss away money. Give it to people. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a problem with it. I never did. Oh, I never did have a problem with helping out brothers or buddies or things like. Never did. Like brother, Bru- like brother Bruda. I, I never did. I look. I, I'm the type of guy that doesn't have a problem with. And there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, these athletes these days, these basketball players, because of the big ESPN contract with the NBA, and these baseball players, they're, you're, you're having uh, re- reserve or uh, utility infielders batting 230, making $4 million a year. So what? I never, never have said that guy's making too much money. Right. I'm always for people making more money. And the people out there who are going to pay it, go get it my feeling. Well, speaking of making money, First Family Mortgage can save you some money, and we can do it right now with a quick 10-minute phone call to 888-425-0105. Maybe you'd like to skip a couple of house payments. We can help you do that. It's your single biggest bill, and you won't make another payment until November 1st. That's right. No payment in September or in October, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. Just 10 minutes on the phone with us right now at 888-425-0105 or check us out online at 1FMC.com. Animal list number 65084, equal housing lender. Uh, Hulk Hogan pins the Giant to regain the WCW title in about 15 minutes, and these aren't wrestling fans, so they're cheering Hogan like the baby face he is. And uh, Meltzer had a little bit of an issue here with Hogan doing this, of course. He wrote that Hogan looked old, his offense was awful, and as a heel, he doesn't bump. Specifically, he wrote, Giant did the Hogan-Superman comeback in one of the campiest spots ever in a wrestling match. It was like watching the worst movie ever made or the worst wrestling match. 
The campiest part of all was Giant doing the Hogan foot to the face and missing it by a foot. Eventually, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash interfere. Hogan hits the Giant with the uh, belt in the head and gets the pin. Uh, the whole thing gets a negative half star from Dave Meltzer. What did you think? Well, it wasn't a good match, but we know what Meltzer thinks about Hogan, so he's not going to like anything that Hogan does, so I take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I The match wasn't that good. The, the, the phony, you know, the spot to where he did the Hogan point and hulking up and leg drop and all that, you know, I, I didn't have a problem with that that much. Uh, I, I thought the visual of them spray-painting the NWO belt was a kind of a lasting impression that what I kind of took away from it more than anything else. You know, again, not all not all world title matches have to be this great five-star match to be effective right. and get the, get the story across. And the story across was now the NWO had the big gold belt, and what were they going to do with it? They were going to deface it. The big gold belt, the one that stood the test of time, so to speak. So Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, after the match, um, they invite uh, the booty man down to the ring, or the booty man comes down with two other guys holding a big birthday cake for Hulk Hogan, who turned 43 the next day. And he puts over his relationship with Hogan for 20-some-odd years and how much he's meant to him and that he's been like a brother. Of course, we know where this is going. Hogan gives him the godfather kiss. Uh, and then beats him down with the help of Kevin Nash. And they do this to show Ric Flair that if Hogan will do this to his best friend, imagine what he will do to Ric Flair at the Clash of the Champions. And Hogan, on pay-per-view, he's really working hard to promote the TBS special, which to me leads, you know, more credence, lends more credence to my theory that that was a critical show for Hogan to pop a rating in order to get his next, his next big contract from Turner. Yeah, that's that's right on. Um, of course, after the beatdown, Kevin Nash holds up the big gold belt while Hogan spray paints the letters NWO on it. Uh, and this is the really iconic big gold belt that Flair debuted in like 86. So at this point, it's been around for more than a decade. It's been the symbol of WCW. And these three guys just stand in the ring and deface it. And no one runs out to defend WCW, which comes off kind of hokey to me. What say you? Uh... I thought that there should have been, if they're defacing the gold belt and they are rubbing, if the NWO has taken over the world title and they're rubbing WCW's face into it, there should have been some sort of attempted run-in. Right. It didn't have to be success, you know, but at least, and, and Hall and Nash could have fought them off, but at least there would have been someone coming out and doing something about this gold belt being defaced. And there wasn't. And I thought that was wrong. That was left out of it. I thought it then. And I even thought it more so when I watched it again. Uh, what do you think overall of uh, the angle with the booty man? Because he's here just for a minute. You guys just kind of teased that you would find out who the fourth man was. Sean Waltman can't be here. So the booty man's here, but he's here for a cup of coffee, and then he's out. Yeah. I, I saw that one coming. I didn't know it was going to happen. But I uh, couldn't you tell when he was walking in sure. that they were going to turn on him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, at that point, it feels a little bit like which one of these is not like the other. You know, you've got two main eventers from the WWF. You've got the biggest star in the history of wrestling. And now you've got Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. This time he's carrying 
a cake at least, you know, instead of just being Hogan's weed carrier, he's, he's carrying his cake. What? Okay. I just want to make sure that people know that it was the, the podfather that talked about Hogan's weed, not me. Um, I don't think that's that big a deal, brother. It's legal now. Right. Uh, Nitro and Casper the next night drew 6,408 fans. 4,200 of those paid 51,930, which is kind of amazing in a market that small. Really look up Casper, Wyoming. Not a big place. WCW won the ratings battle in a big way that day, too, doing a 3.3 rating. Raw only did a 2.0, and that was probably the biggest margin of victory to date. So overall, uh, even though the pay-per-view buys may have been down, maybe that was because of the blackout, and there wasn't a gate because we didn't sell tickets. Uh, this has to be considered a success because it was probably a, pay, uh, a profitable event because Hogan's not on his usual uh, pay split, and it popped a big rating, and you guys smashed Raw the next day. So overall, it's got to be a success, right, Tony? Sure, it was in the it was in the midst of the big run by the NWO. NWO was cool, it was hip, and who was the fourth man going to be? And that all played into that rating point. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate this show, Tony? And what do you remember the most from it? Uh, I rate the show again. We you know we I said thumbs in the middle, so I rated about a five. What I remember more about the show was that I hadn't been out there personally and and got a chance to go to uh, Mount Rushmore and go to Deadwood and uh, go out into the Black Hills and see part of the country I'd never seen before. All uh, We all uh, flew into Grand Rapids, South Dakota, and I'll never forget, I just happened to be on the same flight with, uh, and I had my own rental car at this time, uh, I happened to be on the same flight with uh, Kevin Nash, and this one kid was there at the, uh, and this was back where you could you could go to the gate before security was like it is today. Right. And there was a bunch of fans at the gate waiting on us. And I guess they had been waiting on flights all day. And this one kid who was obviously big into wrestling and was excited to see Kevin Nash, he said, uh, Kevin, there's a, there's a concert tonight in Sturgis. Uh, I'm sure you're going to go to that, aren't you? Kevin said, no, man. He said, I'm just going to find a bottle of Jergens and go watch Spectrovision tonight. And which I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was classic Kevin Nash right there. I mean, he said that with a straight face and just kept right on walking, man. So that's isn't it crazy that I will remember that something like that. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed my time out there because we got to because Sunday was because it was a Saturday night event and Sunday was an off day. Uh, we got to drive. I got to drive through Wyoming. I could drive, and, and I drove from Sturgis to Denver or searches to Casper, and those were long rides, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so, personally, it was an enjoyable show for me, even though probably it wasn't as well-received as some other shows. Well, let's go ahead and uh, invite you to join us in our conversations. We encourage you to ask us questions on our Facebook page this week. You can participate. All you've got to do is like us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Monday. Uh, Tony, I want to wrap it up, so let's just do a few questions here, kind of rapid fire. Are you cool with that? I'm cool. Let's go ahead. Russell wants to know, did Lois pick out your tattoo for this show? No, I had to I had to uh, get rid of it before I, got, I went home. Or she would have chewed my ass out, man. So how'd you do that? Did you rub one out? <laughs> the tattoo, you rubbed it out? Yeah, with, with alcohol. Like Bobby Heenan's alcohol? No. 
rubbing alcohol. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, how many shirts did Dusty own that had sleeves? That's a good question. Uh, you know what? That is a good question. It wasn't many. He wore shirts without sleeves uh, during the summertime and wore his cowboy-type uh, denim shirts during the wintertime. Angela Zimmerman wants to know, this is totally lame to ask, but did they have mm. anything set up at the desk to keep you guys cool? Fans, portable air conditioners, et cetera. No, they never did. And that, that, is, that, is through the, that is throughout time. I can remember back in the old Crockett days working the old Dorton Arena where we were so hot and sweating that we, we it was just miserable. We couldn't stand it, but they never gave us a fan or anything like that. So, um, I guess maybe you know. I guess maybe I should have spoken up, Conrad. As much as I should have spoken up about Heenan and the, the the way he was that night, maybe I should have spoken up. Andrew wants to know: Was the name of the show changed from Hogwild to Roadwild because Harley Davidson was getting wind of the term "hog" being used and unhappy? Yes, that that it was it was a uh, a legal thing. And uh, true to form, Turner Broadcasting, when they found out that somebody was going to sue him or unhappy, they would back down. Uh, next up, we've got, uh, and this is kind of a fun one. <laughs> oh, boy. What? I love that you immediately just go, oh, boy. Well, when you say it's kind of a fun one, sometimes what you think is, is fun and what I think is fun are two different things. Was Travis, uh, Travis Fowler wants to know, was Klondike Bill in Biker Girl Heaven? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, Sturgis was a freak show. And there were there were really some, I'm not going to say repulsive-looking women, but there were some women who shouldn't be in thongs, in leather thongs. Uh, and Bill loved every bit of that. Every bit of that. The, uh, the more repulsive the women looked, the better Bill liked it. The only thing Bill had to do was look at me and rub that old beard. And I knew what he was thinking. That's amazing. Uh, Tom wants to know, uh, I'm surprised you could hear anything with those bikes revving. Whose bright idea was this? What, to rev the bikes or to have it? It felt like you guys played into revving the bikes. Did that? Was that difficult for you? Yeah. That was difficult. You'll tell you what else was difficult for me. The, the damn helicopter over the head, overhead. Routed out a lot of the stuff, too. All right, one last one, Tony, and this is last but certainly not least. Uh, a lot of fans want to know: Do you still have your road, your Hogwild '96 outfit? I still have the hat. Can we get you to tweet a picture of the hat? I'll, I'll, yes, I will look for it and, and try to find it. Absolutely, I will. I still have that leather hat somewhere. Well, we're going to have a great time next week, and next week we're doing something a little different. Uh, because I'm going to be traveling to New York. We will not be able to take next weekend. So instead, uh, we're going to put the, sh uh, the show as a can early in the week, which means there's no time for a poll. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to honor the great Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson retired from professional wrestling in August of 1997, August 25th, in fact. And we're going to give you that show just a few days early. So August 21st, You'll be able to tune in here. That's next Monday, right here on MLWRadio.com, and hear Tony Schiavone talk about his great friend, Arn Anderson. What might we be covering next week, Tony? Arn Anderson made a very special announcement about my family to the boys years ago and surprised me with the announcement. I'll tell you that story. 
I'll tell you how I got to be very good friends with Arn and how our friendship continues today. And I'll also rip on the fact that the WWE this, this past week had him uh, look for catering and pick up a few donuts in one of their, their shittiest vignettes done yet, uh, which really pissed me off, to be honest with you. Because here's this great Arn Anderson, the enforcer, and they portrayed him to be a, just a, a fat-ass has-been in that, uh, in that vignette. You know what I'm talking about? No, I missed it, but now you're speaking my curiosity. I want to go watch it. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was funny because Arn Anderson's a funny guy and maybe one of the funniest guys ever. And he made it work. But maybe I'm too sensitive to stuff like this, but I just thought it... Anyway, I'm going to have a lot of fun with the Arn Anderson story. Uh, Arn Anderson and Aaron and Lois and, and I all went out to dinner a number of times, hung out together. Uh, just one of the, the more likable, personable people behind the stage, behind the scenes. And anybody who's ever, well, ever hung out with him, and Bruce Pritchard will verify this too, no one can make you laugh like Arn Anderson. No one. Well, and we're going to try to make you laugh next week, but it feels like right now, Tony, uh, it's about that time. It is about that time, Conrad. Thank you very much. And time for a bonus match here at Hogwild 2017. And it's going to be a bitch on the back of the bike match. And here comes, well, I'm going to hop on the back of the bike here with Medusa to make sure that Bobby Heenan doesn't hop on. Well, Bobby just fell down, so he won't be hopping on the back of the bike. And I'm going to hop on the back of the bike. And now, making their way to the ring, here's Bull Nakano. And, oh, my God, it's Conrad Thompson on the back of the bike. He is Bull Nakano's bitch. And in the ring, the referee coming out of retirement is Tommy Young. There's a second referee, and he's on the floor. Who hits the barbarian? The barbarian is climbing to the ring. He's talking to Tommy Young. The bitch on the back of the bike. Oh, my God. It's Conrad Thompson. And we're out of time on What Happened When? Monday on the MLW Radio Network. Bitch. Titus and Tate, a podcast from a few obsessed basketball lovers. Twitter's a place for losers. I think the same thing about podcasts. I think you and I are losers. We podcast. We know we're losers. Most podcasts, you and I are doing it right now, are done over Zoom. I'm not even wearing pants right now. It's like, you know, we're going back to the... We're back to where we started, where you're just like kind of sitting... No, we used to wear pants when we, were, when we did podcasts. We've definitely gone... We've gone downhill. More than just analysts and stats. Titus and Tate, listen wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to be talking about wrestling with debt. Well, when our listeners need to save some money, what do they need to do? You just stop asking them fool questions. He ain't got the answer today, baby. Take it from the second most recognizable athlete in the world today. Savewithfood.com can be beat. They lower your monthly payments by five, four, six, eight, seven hundred dollars a month, baby. 
You got credit card debt? Carlos, a second mortgage? There ain't no problem right here at SaveWithBruce.com. Pump the head, go take care of you today. You understand me, baby? And you're listening to What Happened When Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network, and our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, hey, Conrad, and hey, hey, slapdicks all around the world. It's good to talk to you again for another week of What Happened When, as Conrad would say. I like how you emphasize that. Well, What Happened When? I'm trying some things. I'm trying some things. It's good stuff. Yeah, we uh, this is a more fun show for us. I know that uh, it came down to the wire, and I've got to admit, I almost pulled a Tony Schiavone. I thought <laughs> for sure that uh, Bash at the Beast '97 had won, and I started watching it and taking notes when someone tweeted me a question about Fall Brawl, and I'm like, "Well, who the hell cares? We're not even talking about that." And I thought, you know what? I don't want a Schiavone myself. Let me go check the poll, <laughs> and it came down to one percent, and so by 35 to 34 percent margin. A 1% difference. We're going to be covering a Fall Brawl 1997. But before we get there, we have been teasing a pretty big announcement this week. And uh, I feel like it's time to smarten everybody up. We've got some great news. You just tried, you know, my little emphasis on what happened when. Well, what happened when Tony Schiavone did his first live podcast? How about that? Astounding. How about that? And it's coming up, isn't it, Conrad? It is I mean, it's coming up. This summer, we are going to be going live. It's not only me. It's going to be my good, long-time, close, personal friend, at least since January, Conrad Thompson. (laughs) And we are going to be going live with our What Happened When podcast. We're going to be in Dallas, Texas. Sunday, July 9th is going to be the day of Great Balls of Fire, the WWE pay-per-view in Dallas. This is going to happen at three lengths on Elm Street in Dallas, Texas. Tickets are not on sale yet. They will go on sale next week. And we'll be talking more about that next week, how you can get tickets. I, I'm just flabbergasted, flummoxed, I think as Dusty Rhodes once said, about all this. And I'm really excited to go back to one of the great cities in, in the in the country, Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, the city that is responsible for killing Jim Crockett promotions. We're coming back. And this time, we're going to kill the town ourselves. It's, uh, yes, we are. Three links right there in Dallas. And you've got plenty of time to come check us out and then cruise on over and see the pay-per-view Great Balls of Fire that the WWE is putting on. This was kind of a last-minute ad for the WWE. So it's a last-minute ad for us, but we're tickled to be there. Uh, I love Dallas. I know we're going to have a great time. We're doing things a little different. Uh, everybody's going to get the VIP treatment on this. We're going to have more details for you on next week's episode. The tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. Dallas time. That's Central Standard Time next Monday. Tune in to our show next week 
and we'll give you the URL you need to type in and smash those tickets up. But Tony Schiavone, Conrad Thompson, what happened when we're doing it right, right there in Dallas on July 9th. It's going to be a 1 o'clock show. It is all ages. Now, I don't know why you'd want to bring your kids. You must be one slap dick of a dad if you think that's okay. Uh, but technically, it's not a bar. You can bring your children, uh, but they'll need therapy after. But it's happening. Yeah. 1 o'clock, July 9th, three links in Dallas, Texas. We'd love to see you. We're going to have a great time. Uh, if you haven't been to one of these type of shows before, uh, it's probably unlike anything that you've done before. I, I say that, but we haven't done one of these. But what Tony and I have planned here, um, no one's ever done anything this ridiculous <laughs> before. So we're going to have fun. We want to see you there. It's July 9th. Uh, so tune in next week for more details, Dallas. We're coming to see you. But we've also got something kind of fun that we want to talk about now. And I feel like a lot of people have maybe missed this, Tony, so we should just spell it out plainly. We're doing one pay-per-view per year in order. I thought by now everybody probably caught on to that, but we started with 88, and now we've kind of went every year since, and we're covering one pay-per-view per year. So 92, 93, 94, 95, we're up to 97 now. We're going to see this all the way through. So in the next few weeks, you'll see one pay-per-view from 98, and then the week after that, 99, then 2000, then 2001. But I know what you're thinking. A lot of you have been pretty vocal about it. We want more Jim Crockett. Well, we got what you're looking for. We're doing it, and we're not putting a poll up for it. It's going to be on Monday, June 19th. We are doing the Four Horsemen episode. It's the one everybody wants to hear about, probably the greatest faction in the history of professional wrestling, and we're going back to the beginning. Today's episode kind of covers the end of the Four Horsemen, uh, and Kevin Nash even proclaims that at the end of the show. It's the death of the Four Horsemen. But we're going to do something a little different, and we're going to bookend it. So June 19th, we're going back to the very beginning, and we're doing this in conjunction with the brand-new Four Horsemen book. If you haven't heard about this, that's what everybody's going to be talking about. It's written by our great friend, Mr. Dick Bourne, over at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. It's not on sale yet, but we are announcing it here right now for the very first time. And our listeners will have a chance to pre-order it before anyone else. But what's better than buying the book? Winning it. Well, now you can win it before you can buy it. Just cruise over to Facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Go ahead and like that page and then share the post about the Four Horsemen book. You'll see right there at the top of the page. That's it. Share it and you're entered. And then next week we will announce a winner and someone is going to get the brand new Four Horsemen book before you can actually buy it. Uh, and anything Dick Bourne is involved in is going to be thorough. So if you're not sure, are you getting a lot of detail? Yes, you are. If you're not familiar with Dick, he's done books on the old NWA titles, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, and more. He is Mr. Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, if you are a fan of the Mid-Atlantic Territory, the midatlanticgateway.com is the site that gets it right, and they're doing this book. Uh, it's the brand-new Four Horsemen book. So win it before you can buy it. All you've got to do, cruise over to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday right now. And in the coming weeks, we're going to give you the link on how you can pre-order it. And you'll have that book, hopefully, in your hand by the time we do our brand-new Four Horsemen episode on Monday, June 19th. Tony, the Four Horsemen, greatest faction of all time. Wouldn't you agree? Well, the greatest faction of my career, I don't think there's any question. I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I feel... Uh, Arn Anderson claims that I named the Four Horsemen. I, I didn't name them. I think either Arn or Ole named them, but I did react to when they first mentioned it on TBS. I did look at Arn and say, you just named them right there. So uh, 
I was kind of a part of that, and I, and I feel so uh, excited about being a part of that, and I feel excited about Dick Bourne's book. And, uh, yeah, greatest faction ever. Now, the faction that we're going to be talking about today uh, was not part of what I consider the greatest faction ever because I thought, you know, with Arn Anderson's injury and his retirement and, of course, with Barry Windham gone, uh, that, uh, that uh, it, it had kind of got watered down. Yeah, they not- kept... No, they kept putting people in just for the sake of keeping the Four Horsemen name. But the original Four Horsemen to me, of course, and we'll talk about this on the 19th, but were the, the, the ones that were Ole and Arn and Rick and Tully. Those were the Four Horsemen with J.J. to me. So, yeah, I, it's, it was a great faction. Uh, they ruled wrestling, ruled WCW, and, hey, I was right there at ringside, man, so to speak. All right there holding the microphone. And you're going to be able to hear a live play-by-play of all things Horsemen. It's Monday, June 19th, our biggest show ever. And we want you to go ahead and get in on this and have all the details. So go right now, facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Like the page and then share that post. And you're going to be able to win this book before you can buy it. I got my copy this last week, did a little traveling over the weekend, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and you're going to get one of these advanced copies, too. Win it before you can buy it. You know, that's what everybody likes. They like getting something they're not supposed to get. Well, how about a book that's not even been sent to the publisher yet? Roll tight on that. Go to Facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Uh, let's talk about Fall Brawl, man. Before we get started, I guess we should give a little bit of background. Uh, you just referenced the Arn Anderson retirement that happened on August 25th, 1997. Arn retired on air. It was a phenomenal segment, one of the, the better, more memorable segments on, on, on Nitro. And you see in the background uh, Ric Flair visibly upset as Arn gives his spot. And they make a big emphasis on that's what Arn has left of his wrestling career, his spot in the Four Horsemen. And he asked Kurt Henning to join the Horsemen. Uh, it was written about very, very fondly in The Observer. Uh, this announcement happened in Columbia, South Carolina, and it was one of those real moments in wrestling. Tony, you were there. What did you think of this Arn Anderson in-ring retirement? I thought it was uh, spectacular. I thought that Arn Anderson uh, was and will go down as one of the great interviewers of all time. And not only that, will go down as one of the great uh, characters in wrestling and one of the great minds in wrestling. I think that's being proven today. He works behind the scenes with the WWE. But more than that, Arn Anderson and I have always been very, very good friends. We hung out together. I hope none of those stories are in Dick Bourne's book, but we hung out together years and years ago, uh, back when I was silly enough to hang out with the Four Horsemen. We became very good friends. We still stay in touch uh, today, although not as much as I like. He has come to Charlotte. He lives in Charlotte. He comes to baseball games when we're playing the Charlotte team. And I get him some tickets, and he'll come up and see me. I thought this was spectacular. I, I thought it was spectacular, but it was also sad. And I had known for a long time of his, his neck injuries. I had had neck surgery in 95, uh, and I know that he had had uh, neck problems as well. We had talked to both of us about how neither of us could really sleep comfortably at night, and it will be that way for the rest of our lives. Uh, he had taken some uh, spectacular bumps in his day. He, had, he was a throwback to old-school wrestling. So you're never going to hear me speak ill of Arn Anderson, but this interview, to me, kind of really summed up his career. Uh, but, again, it was another one in the line of great interviews of Arn Anderson. 
I don't know how much you know of Arn in the, in, uh, in real life. I, maybe maybe the funniest guy ever. He has ever. the driest sense of humor and, and the quickest wit of maybe anybody uh, in wrestling that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, he could not be more gracious to me, but super funny, and will deliver deadpan one-liners that he doesn't sell facially. And so you right. have to look and be like, did he really say what I think he just said? And then it kicks in. It's almost like a delay. Like you, your brain is on a seven-second delay because you're like, wait a minute. His demeanor does not match what he just said. Is that what he just said? Yes, it is. Yeah. One time he told me, uh, and Bruce Pritchard may not remember this, but it was Bruce and I with, with Arn out the one in my year in the WWE. And Arn Anderson, <laughs> we were all drinking. He looks at me and he said, let me ask you something. I said, what? He said, why every time I go to take the shower, does my wife come in and take a shit? <laughs> and Bruce and I looked at each other. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know. He said, that didn't happen in your house. They'll just come down and lay these little peas down and then they'll leave. They don't take a shit like a real man. He looked around, took a swig of beer, and walked away. And Bruce and I were like almost on the floor. Now, I can't deliver it the way he can, but that's the kind of humor that he had. So he was spectacular. Remarkable. You know, I don't know that his lovely wife, Erin, wanted us talking about her taking a shit on the podcast. <laughs> but since, we, <laughs> since we've done it. <laughs> we did it, Erin. We love you. <laughs> oh, gosh. And how about this? I know for sure their son listens, so he just heard all yeah. about his mom. Well, okay. Him. Come on. But, but, hey, it's fine. No big Every, deal. Everybody who's been married a long time like he has has had the opportunity to be taking a shower, and all of a sudden there's someone on the commode, and it's your wife. You're thinking, "What? I'm I'm trying to take a shower here." Okay. No, I'm not. So I'm it, not, it's not. happened every time. So Arn would just would just take these everyday things that happen in life, and make and make fun out of them, make jokes. And I've got an Arn Anderson story uh, that I do want to tell, but if if, if you'll uh, if we'll go along here, I'll, I'll tell a little bit later. Okay. No, and no, 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 we got time right now. <laughs> Well, I play the hits, man. If you've got a good Arn Anderson story, let's hear it. Well, maybe that I know that his son is listening. I shouldn't tell it. I don't know. Well, I'll I'll, get, I'll do one if you do one. Okay. You first. Huh? We were in Chicago, and it was after an event, and I cannot tell you what event it was. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a pay per view. It was back in the Crockett era, and we were as we would always go on Rush Street and hang out and drink. And Arn was up against the wall drinking. They had these little ledges that came out from the wall where you could sit down and drink, and he was drinking, and I was talking to him, and all of a sudden he went out cold. Now his feet went out, boom, and he hit the floor, kaboom! So there was Arn Anderson, the enforcer, who in his heyday was a big, big, big guy. He still is. And he was out on the floor of the bar, and... There was David Crockett with me, and I said, David, we got to do something about our buddy here. So David and I got him up and dragged him to a cab. Almost the same way, that I guess, that Jeff Hardy was dragged to, to the uh, gorilla position for Sting's match in oh my, TNA oh with, his, with his feet dragging on the floor. Okay? So David, went, we went to the Marriott somewhere in, in Chicago, and David uh, went to the front desk. And I held up Arn Anderson at, behind a plant so they wouldn't see how drunk he was. Okay? <laughs> so, so, so David and I took him, got him 
staggered him, drug him to the hook, to the uh, elevator, went upstairs to his room. This is like, this is like weekend at Bernie's right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We have we have the enforcer who right now is a dead body. Okay. We open up the hotel room, literally do this. I we open up the door, prop the door open, and throw him in the bed, and close the door and leave. All right. So the next day, as Arn Anderson tells the story, he wakes up in a hotel room. He doesn't know where the hell he is. He has no idea what's going on. So the only person he knows to call is Bruce MacArthur, the general, as Ric Flair would call him. He was a friend of everybody's and, you know, had a lot of money, kind of ran the town, so to speak. He called, he called his office and he said, put the general on. And she said, I'm sorry, he's in the media, so I don't give a shit. I'm in a room, I don't know where the fuck I am. Tell him it's double A. So, MacArthur came to the phone. They had to get somebody to go get him because we literally put him in the room and there was no way. I guess we should have left a note. Hey, Arn, you're at the Marriott. You passed out, whatever. But he, he woke up in the room not knowing where he was and really panicked. So, there's my weekend at Bernie's Arn Anderson story. I was a part of that. I was physically a part of that with, with Arn Anderson. That's going to be hard to beat. Yeah, so, he, you know, again, he makes jokes out of it. He makes light of it, which is great, because he would always, you know, talk. Uh, yeah, you need to hear him tell this story, because it's one of the great Arn Anderson stories, really, when he woke up in that room, the Marriott, having no idea where he was, and calling the general out of a big meeting uh, at the company to make sure he had somebody come pick him up. Phenomenal. Yep. So, so you got one? Uh, yeah, we'll get to it in a little bit. Oh, for shit. <laughs> Let's talk about this uh, this retirement. Um, Arn Anderson, obviously one of our favorite wrestlers here on the show. And if if you're a younger fan and you're not all the way in the loop on the greatness that is Arn Anderson, I encourage you to go watch the mid to late '80s Arn Anderson matches and promos, and just watch them again, maybe for the very first time. And instead of just watching the match, instead of just watching the program, really focus on Arn Anderson, and you'll appreciate why so many of the boys look up to him and respect his opinion. Uh, and his ability that he had then, and certainly that he has now from a mental standpoint and all of his contributions there. But you knew this angle was coming. Uh, he started wrestling less and less towards the end of 96. 97, he wasn't nearly as active as he had been in prior years. So August 25th, at Kurt Henning, we've talked about a few times on the show that there had been discussions of trying to bring him in and make him a horseman, even back at the time when he was with the WWF and on a Lloyd's of London deal where he wasn't wrestling. So, when did you know, hey, this is the way they're going? Did you know the day of, a week out, a month out? Kind of peek behind the curtain of what the long-term booking looked like for an angle like this. The long-term booking I looked about, for me, it looked about a week out, knowing that they were going to, that they were going to uh, have this angle play out. Uh, I uh, Again, I was, and even if the, you see the credits that roll at the end of that, I was an executive producer, but not really involved in the booking committee that much. But I knew about a week out from it happening that this was going to go down. Now, backstage at this show, um, Kevin Sullivan had returned. He had been off for a little bit with some personal stuff, but he's backstage now, and Meltzer would report kind of equal power with Terry Taylor. So Meltzer says he wasn't really sure where they were going next with this, and... He, he says, I don't even want to speculate. So when you saw this segment and them kind of giving Kurt the spot 
and him accepting. Did you already know what the payoff was going to be? I did not. So as far as you knew, Arn was going to assume kind of the J.J. Dillon role of the group, at least on screen, and then Kurt would step in into Arn's spot, and the horseman would continue. That's right. Uh, again, because as we said at the top of the show, uh, they, they tried to continue the horseman and make the horseman viable. And uh, again, I thought he'd gotten watered down. When, and I, I don't want to slight Kurt Hennig, who's one of the great performers of, of our era. Uh, but but still, you know, Mon- Mongo in the Four Horsemen, Kurt Hennig in the Four Horsemen, and another wonderful performer in the Wolverine, Chris Benoit, uh, were not Flair, Arn Tully, J.J., and Barry Windham, or before then, Ole Anderson. No, it certainly feels a lot different, and there's been lots of criticism of Mongo being a horseman, uh, but Flair endorsed him in a big way and says that what maybe he lacked in-ring, he more than made up for out-of-ring as far as the horseman lifestyle and persona and the way he carried himself. Uh, and he was a legit badass. Nobody's arguing that. But right. but maybe not the in-ring worker, you know, that Barry Windham or, or Tully Blanchard were. Uh, and this isn't really Kurt Henning at his peak. You know, Kurt, 10 years prior to this, was probably one of the best wrestlers in the entire country. Uh, and at this point, he's had some injuries. He's beat up. He's not nearly where he was before, but you could say that about, you know, pretty much everybody in the Horsemen at that point. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the next week, though, because this is where the controversy comes in. So one week after this, uh, as Ric Flair says, a real moment in professional wrestling uh, where, you know, there's lots of stuff in wrestling that you look at and you say, oh, that's all to put on. Uh, Arn giving up his Horseman spot felt like a pretty emotional real deal, and... It made for great television. And the next week, they dedicate Nitro to the greatness that is Arn Anderson. They show a lot of clips and are really kind of highlighting the career and the contributions to the company that Arn had made. But meanwhile, the NWO had a skit planned. And in this skit, we see Conan dressed as Mongo. We see Buff dressed as Kurt. We see Ric Flair portrayed by Six, Sean Waltman, One Two Three Kid. And then we see Kevin Nash in full-on makeup carrying a styrofoam cooler and a stuffed shirt to make him look heavyset. Um, and they disparage and mock the segment a week before. And there's been lots of talk, and, and you, were, you were there. Yep. I want to know, the stories are that God Arn's okay and that Arn was okay with it. The story was that... Um, Arn phoned home. His wife and children were upset, especially about the drinking part. They feel like that maybe was a little out of bounds or got more emphasis than what was originally discussed. Uh, Kevin Nash would say that's not true. That was Arn's actual cooler, and Arn was okay with it because that was his legit cooler. And Ric Flair says that the idea was Terry Taylor's. You were there. What say you? I say, I'm not so sure whose idea it was from the booking committee, but I say it did not humiliate the horseman. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a very entertaining wrestling angle, and I say that being a friend of Arn Anderson and Rick Flair's, and I say that from being right there at the beginning of the Horseman that it was funny. I had heard 
I had heard that Arn and Rick were upset. That's what I had heard. And then I remember thinking, what the hell, guys? It's wrestling. It's the NWO. They make fun of everything. They're jerks. That's what they are, and that's how they portray it. They would, if you look at what's going on logically in the, the life of the NWO, they would make fun of all this. This is what they would do. So I was surprised when I heard some negative about it. I didn't hear that about Arn's family being upset about it. I heard Arn and Flair were upset about it. So, allegedly, the original plan, uh, and again, this is some speculation and rumor and innuendo from the dirt sheets after the fact, but allegedly, it was worked in to where, during this parody, the horsemen do a run-in, as we've seen before, and then there's a big brawl, and they throw a commercial. And this teases, you know, the only way to settle this is inside of a cage. But allegedly, Bischoff goes to Terry Taylor and nixes that run-in and says, hey, we don't have time, just cut that. Yeah. So now instead of there being a big payoff and, hey, them's fighting words and, and all that, the horsemen just sit in the back like a bunch of fucking goofs. Uh, as they as they mock it, and then they go to commercial, and nothing happens. And supposedly, right. this is what Flair's upset about, saying, hey, it's no problem if you go do that, but we, we've got to get our heat back, and we've got to come in and defend ourselves. So allegedly, when they ask Flair to go out later and do an interview, he just refuses and says, I can't salvage that. If I can't come out and, and stop them from doing it, what am I going to go say on the microphone now that's going to make that all better? So he just doesn't come out. Do you, right. do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. And I thought that was just Flair being a part of of being upset about the angle. I, I didn't realize it was because the run-in was next. But I can see the run-in being next because, again, a lot of times things ran over. And we were flying by the seat of our pants a lot of times. And, you know, we t- would try back then during the wars to hit the quarter hours to where something was happening. So if... If this skit ran longer than it should have, I can see Eric nixing it because of time, which in hindsight is obviously the wrong thing to do. Another thing is, though, if if Arn was really was really the brunt of this joke or the brunt of this skit, because Kevin Nash to me, I thought again, I was I was kind of quote unquote rolling in the aisles because I know Arn, and, and I thought Kevin was a hilarious. Uh, in this, in, unless Arn can do a run-in, which he couldn't do, I don't know how much a run-in would have worked. And, and that's just me, again, armchair quarterback, freestyling here, okay? Well, um, allegedly, this results in a confrontation after the show, uh, or after the segment, depending on who you believe, where Arn kind of confronts Kevin Sullivan once he's talked to his wife at home and realizes everybody's upset about the way he was portrayed. And the idea being not the whole average carpenter shield, blah, blah, blah jokes, but the idea that he's essentially just a drunk. And he didn't want that out there, which is probably why Tony was so proud to talk about him hiding behind a plant weekend at Burnsville. <laughs> <laughs> He's fucking dick on the bus. Um, oh, oh, I've got suckered into this. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, uh, all right, uh, I'm going to defend it right here and say, do you think Arn Anderson was the only one that got drunk? No, listen, we're, we're just, this is <laughs> okay. 
Everybody okay. understands if you're going to be friends with Ric Flair, you're going yeah. to be talked into drinking to, into excess a time or two. Yes, you, you are. have on this very show talked about how Rick got you so drunk once you threw up in the tub. You know, yeah. It's just a rite of passage of hanging with the nature boy. You're going to overdo it once or twice. You may okay. even get so drunk you pee your pants. It happens. Okay. I'm Thank not you. saying that somebody on this call right now has done that. I'm just saying in, in theory that can wow. happen, okay. allegedly. Um, Did you have a change of pants that night? Yeah, we were, we were out of town. I mean, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> uh, so, well, I'm the one that threw up in the tub. Yeah, well, somebody. So you have to be the one to pee your pants. I, I, okay. I'm not saying it was me. There's only two of us here. Roll Tide. Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, the heat between the horsemen and the NWO is legit to a point that it's silly because of the clash on August 21st, there was a bomb threat called into Nashville during the flare match. And Nash was joking after the show that Anderson must have called it in because they wanted management to think somebody actually cared about flare. And there's a major level of discomfort as of late in the dressing room regarding people trying to take credit for all of the recent success. Do you remember there being any sort of heat with, because uh, I know clicky stuff existed in the locker room at this time. And do you remember there being some sort of weird animosity between Kevin Nash and his buddies and the Flair Anderson contingent? Yeah, I, I remember that because I, I think we all knew. Uh, I mean, th there could have been some professional jealousy because, let's face it, uh, with Hogan coming to WCW and then with Hall and Nash coming to WCW, we were obviously on top, and they had a lot to do with that, if not everything to do with that, uh, possibly. Uh, and I remember there being a lot of heat backstage between that. And, and again, too, you know, uh, Scott Hall was a big-time shit disturber. Oh, yeah. And, and he reveled in that. He still does. He, he acknowledges that he would... He would stir stuff up just to keep yeah. it interesting. It was funny to him. Right, right. He he was very good at that. Uh, Kurt Hennig was a practical joker that everybody knew about and, and kind of laughed at all the time. Scott Hall was a shit disturber, and I would think that, in a, and again, there was a lot of backstage that went on during the show because I was out and doing the matches that I didn't see, but I would think that he would keep the story going and keep the ship disturbed as he would, and we would go along. On this show, Larry Zabisco uh, does a run-in, and Larry's comments to me that night took me off guard. Because he called him a coward. You know, Larry always made it seem like everybody was really tough. Right. But when he was talking about Scott, uh, Scott Hall that night, he called him a coward and a chicken, and I remember thinking, and if you listen to it, I kind of reacted like, what, what, what are you talking about here? What, what, you, I mean, there, there was, to me, there was some genuine heat there, and that, to me, hearing what Zabisco had to say, told me that there was genuine heat going on with Scott Hall. And that's kind of when I first heard about it, and then as we went along, I heard there was more. So, yeah, there was heat between factions, no question about it. Hall and Nash thought that they were the reason that we were on top. Well, they were. And, well, yes, of course they were. Absolutely, they were. Um, another part of this skit that maybe gets overlooked a little bit is Six doing the Ric Flair impression with the sweater the vest and the big crazy nose, and uh -huh. he's got a gimmick where it makes it look like he's constantly crying 
that kind of comes through his fingers. So there's just water streaming the whole time, kind of mocking yeah. the fact that Flair cries so easily. But there's been tons of promos where Flair would just mention, I've got more world titles than you've got pieces of ass. You know, I may not be able to whip the big man or the or, or the medium man, but I know I can kick your ass. So there's lots of little uh, back and forth in the promo time with Rick and Sean Waltman. Do you perceive there as being any real heat, or is that just Rick being an entertainer? Uh, I think that's Rick being an entertainer. Uh, there's a thing, as you know, called ribbing on the square that uh, sometimes they would do that. But I like to think of Ric Flair being a professional about this. This was all make-believe, right? right? We know that now. Sure. So if it's all make-believe, why do you get upset about it if someone tries to go a different way? And if you do, why can't you sit down man-to-man and talk it out? So all this stuff to me, like Meltzer said, was silly. I just thought it was silly. Guys were trying to make money. We're trying to do the best business we can. And, damn it, we're doing good business with this NWO angle. Oh, for let, sure. them do their, let them do their shit. Let them do it. And I'm, I'm an Arn Anderson supporter, a Ric Flair supporter, and a friend. Ric Flair got me in this business. And, uh, and if, I was, if I was not upset about all of this, uh, even with uh, Six Crying which, and the Nose, which <laughs> it's funny. Broke, it broke me up. It did. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Terry Taylor before we get to the actual pay-per-view. I know some people listening are thinking, oh, they are going to talk about the pay-per-view, but this is the this is the center angle. This is what the whole show is about. Sure. Um, was there any heat on Terry Taylor here? Because politically, this seems like it's um, something that's going to be a little divisive, uh, and maybe it's Bischoff and Nash had the idea, and they just wanted Terry to take the heat. Or maybe it was a Terry idea, but Bischoff nixes the comeback and kind of cuts the legs out from under it. What do you think in regards to the Terry Taylor situation? Was there any sort of political maneuvering, or was this just a good idea and, and the, the segment got cut short? I, I think that's what it, well, that's what it was to me, that it was a good idea and the segment got cut short. Uh, as far as Terry Taylor is concerned, Terry Taylor throughout history has had heat. He has. Why do you think that is? Terry did. Uh, well, you and I have a device. We don't use it that much during this, during what happens when. But in in everyday life, you and I have a device in our brain that prevents us from saying what we're thinking. Terry didn't have that. <laughs> Terry never knew when to shut up, uh, and it wasn't that Terry was was a mouthy prick or anything like that, but Terry would always say something and never hold back, and if there was something said on the side that Wrestler A said about Wrestler B, Terry would let, you couldn't tell Terry Taylor that because he didn't know how to shut up. I, Terry and I had plenty of discussions. We had arguments. Terry and I had big-time arguments late uh, in, uh, in WCW. But again, Terry didn't have that device. He didn't know how to shut up. Didn't know how to hold a secret. Didn't know how to stop saying things that were that were made. I will not say politically incorrect, but that just were better not said. Right. And so he always had heat. And I think I think uh, pretty much anybody who's worked in the business would agree with me on that. 
Well, he's got heat with uh, Bruce Pritchard. That's for sure. There you go. How about that? Uh, so let's talk about the actual pay-per-view itself. The stage is set now, in case you uh, haven't seen the show in a while. The big payoff here is they're building towards the Horsemen and the NWO inside two steel cages. It's the War Games match. It's finally back. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit in the past, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in, in a little bit. But the War Games was kind of a staple from the old Jim Crockett promotions days. WCW has kept on. Uh, but it's in its dying days here, and it's winding down. Uh, this pay-per-view we're covering in particular, Fall Brawl, The War Games, happened on September 14, 1997 at the Lawrence Joel Coliseum. It's in Winston-Salem, uh, normally a stronghold of the Jim Crockett promotions. Anything in the Carolinas was pretty much a guaranteed sellout in the old Crockett days. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? It was good, it was good business. Winston-Salem is 30 miles, 25 miles from Greensboro, which was the top venue for Jim Crockett promotions. In the old days, and that's because in the old days, as we say, the 80s, the Lawrence Joe Memorial Coliseum had not yet been built. It was a newer venue. Uh, and this pay-per-view, despite it being the one that killed the town, so to speak, uh, was pretty well received, at least by the readers of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. It got a 43, I'm sorry, it got 64.2% thumbs up, uh, only 43 votes. Uh, 14 thumbs down, which is 20.9%, and 14.9% thumbs in the middle. Now, you just watched this show for the first time in, like, 20 years, right, Tony? What did you think? Yep. Thumbs up, thumbs down? Where were you? Um, I have a couple of things. I'm going to say overall thumbs up. Uh, the thumbs down, the 20.9%, it were probably the, uh, the old standby Mid-Atlantic horseman people who didn't like that. Uh, I say thumbs up because there were great matches on this. From top to bottom, there were great matches. Even the Giants' basically squash match of Scott Norton was well done. Uh, but I'm going to say kind of thumbs in the middle or maybe even thumbs down because, to be very honest with you, this to me, and I'm looking at it critically, looking at myself as an announcer and how I developed through the years, I think this is the beginning of me becoming a pretty decent wrestling announcer to an overhyped shill. I don't know how many times watching this I'm saying to myself, shut the fuck up and let Heenan talk. <laughs> or let Zabisco talk or let Mike talk. And I'm just going over the top and overselling things. And we did a lot of these really good matches at the beginning, like Guerrero. The match with Chris Jericho. Oh, phenomenal. Even, yeah, it was. Alex Wright had a good match with Ultimo Dragon. Yep. The tag team match was good with the Powers of Pain uh, and Wrath and Mortis. And we did those a disservice. Why? Because we kept talking about the war games. Now, I understand where we're going with this, but we had a captive audience. We didn't have to keep selling the war games. Right. They bought the thing. Right. We did not have to push the next week. But we kept selling it and selling it, and then they kept the Kurt Angle, I know, and that even moved it forward ahead. But I, uh, I'm i going to go back. Last week when we uh, yeah. when we did World War III. I was hoping you were going to address this. Okay. Okay. No, I'm, I'm not going to. I know what you're saying. But just let me say this. Last week when we did World War III, I thought we did a good job as announcers, and I thought we got uh, uh, shit on by David Meltzer. Uh, and I, I thought he was wrong. I thought I was horrible in this show, and I thought moving forward here, 
I even got worse. Not going to always blame it on myself, but I do have to say the buck stops here with my announcing. But I was constantly pushed to oversell, to hype it. In other words, I was I was constantly being produced more yeah. as we move forward. Somebody's in your ear telling you to promote yeah, more right. games. But either way, though, you were pretty hard on Dave last week, and that was the most talked about thing from last week's episode. Yeah. It's available in the archives. Uh, Dave was very critical of the announcing in World War Three '96. And Tony kind of went off, and our great friend, Mr. Matt Coon, who puts together some of the musical stuff that we do here and on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, he put together something that you have to hear. We're going to play at the very end of this week's show. So uh, don't tune out. When we start going over poll options, man, hang in there. At the very end of the show, we're going to play this. But it sounds like you kind of acknowledge that maybe some of what Meltzer says here isn't off-base. Maybe it was just out of place for the time. Maybe it was a, a couple pay-per-views too early. Yeah, uh, I would think so. Uh, I, uh, I I did not like my commentary at all on this. I well, <clears throat> around that time in my life, I was. <laughs> I'm going to say this honestly, and I'm going to say this slowly so it doesn't get misinterpreted. Around that time in my life, I was on speed. Uh, and it was because I had been, this is true, I, look at you sitting there, you just took a big swig of drink saying, lower it on me. Okay, because I had been diagnosed, check with Lois on this, I had been diagnosed with ADD, adult ADD. So I went to the doctor, I got diagnosed with adult ADD, and he put me on this drug called Silent. C-Y-L-E-R-T, which is a, a drug like Ritalin, only you had to get every month or every three months, you had to get liver tests because it would damage the liver. And it would, I would be so, so focused on these shows, and you can ask Mike today this, Mike and I would talk about it, that how focused I've been on these shows because the siren was working, but later on, I don't know when that was, I said, ah, fuck it. It's not worth all these liver tests and damaging my liver down the road. I'm going to stop taking it. And I really haven't taken it since then. But I, I could tell I was on speed that night. Because I was hyped up, buddy. This is like an after-school special right now. <laughs> I was not ready for, you know, a drug PSA here. Okay, look. Look, I, I'm not, I wasn't abusing drugs. I've never abused drugs. I don't even drink that much. Tony, but you just said you were shooting up speed. <laughs> Thank you. I was taking a controlled substance, Silert. If I had to pee in a bottle that night, I would show the guys, here's my uh, prescription. It's got my name on it, and it's prescribed. It worked, but it wasn't worth it later down the road. Listen, if you're in Lois Giovanni's family, you got to drug up. Mm. Mother's Day, brother. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Well, let's talk about this mother of a show. Uh, all right, well, anyway, the announcing sucked. Well, it always, it, it, it always did if you were there. Um, so let's <laughs> let's talk about this pay-per-view, because this seems like a common thing at the time. The WWF kind of was known in 97 for maybe weaker undercards and really strong main events, but you guys seemingly were cranking out. Really, really strong undercards, but kind of weaker main events. Would you agree with that assessment that many fans have? Yeah, I, I agree with that because the undercard guys could really work. 
could uh, really work. Meltzer would write, uh, in this case, the main event that the show was built around, War Games, was among the worst War Games ever as a match, but the ending and post-match were among the most dramatic. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about the, the post-match here in just a second, but do you think this is the worst War Games ever up until that point? Yeah, I do. Okay. And I uh, I think it was because of the uh, – it, it was, it was kind of just a big angle is all it was. Uh, and there was no blood. Why have a double cage if you can't bleed for crying out loud? Uh, again, that's kind of an extension of uncensored. Why have uncensored if you can't bleed? Why have war games? Why even have a cage if you can't bleed? And I know that's old school, but again, that's that's uh, the TBS fucking us over. Uh, but yeah, I think it was the worst one. Uh, Meltzer would be uh, pretty critical of some advertising. Let's get into that. The show drew a sellout of 11,939 folks, uh, 11,024 paid, with a gain of $213,330, slightly more than the 1996 War Games that was in the same building, which I've always been fascinated by you guys running the same building for pictures like this, yeah. but a much higher gross with the increase in ticket price. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, he did note in the Observer, in all the WCW print advertising in the market, they listed Hulk Hogan as appearing on the show, which is blatant false advertising because it was known months in advance that he was skipping the show. Why do you think that that would be the case? Meltzer would speculate the general belief as to why the teams in the war games weren't announced until the day before the show is only partly because of lack of organization. It's also because of the way Nitro had hyped it to make people think perhaps Hogan and Sting would be on opposite sides until the announcement of the complete lineup was made for Team WCW six days before the show. Um, what do you think of the idea to kind of make fans believe that Sting may be in this, and they certainly did think he would appear throughout the show and especially during the main event, we right. want Sting, we want Sting, we want Sting. He never comes. Nope. Uh, and he he was there the year before when they did the whole fake sting angle, which I'm sure we'll get into another time. But he's not here this time, and they had certainly not announced he was going to be in the NWO team or the WCW team until right before, because specifically on the NWO side, it kind of feels a little bit like the B team. And I don't mean any disparaging remarks there, but. The A-team of the NWO had been the Outsiders and Hulk Hogan. Well, here we've got Kevin Nash, Conan, Buff Bagwell, and Sean Waltman, all phenomenal performers in their own right, but certainly a notch below, with the exception of Kevin Nash, of the main event status uh, that many would have expected. And it's not like these guys worked a lot of other pay-per-view main events. Um, yeah. Was, I this, was this deliberate, do you think, in not announcing who was, who was participating in the match? My gut reaction it would be WCW being disorganized and the left hand not doing what the right hand is doing because, you know, back then, print advertising had to go out far in advance. Uh, and then when we found out that Hogan was on it, we just probably said, you know what, we got to go with it. Let's do the best we can with it. Um, so I, I don't know if it was underhanded dealing by WCW. I do know that things changed a lot. And when I say things changed a lot, you have no idea how things changed. From one day to the other. From one segment to the other, things changed. 
And sometimes you got what you got just because we were so disorganized and someone had a better idea and we went with it. I don't think it was any uh, underhanded doings by WCW. Could have been. I just think it was disorganization on our part. Um, what about Hulk Hogan not appearing here? How big of an effect do you think that has on the buy rate? It certainly feels like it. You know, I yeah. know we're going to break it down eventually, but let's go ahead and cover it. Uh, Fall Brawl gets a .53, which translates to 195,000 buys. The month before, with Road Wild, which was historically one of the worst shows of the year, they got 240,000. So this is a 45,000 drop. And in the next month, Halloween Havoc, they did 405,000 buys. They wouldn't be back at this 195 level until Slambury 1999. So this would be the worst that it would be for well over a year. I mean, almost two years. Um, do you? How much of that do you attribute to not announcing the, the participants, a lack of interest in the horsemen maybe, um, or Hulk Hogan's absence? Not interested in the, uh, the participants and Hulk Hogan's absence. Um, look, when I rewatched the show, I remember thinking, when Scott Hall came out with Macho Man Randy Savage, I remember thinking, how come they're not in the main event? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it feels weird that Macho Man and Scott Hall aren't in the main event. Um, yeah. And, Co and, and no disrespect, but Conan and Buff Bagwell and Six had not been positioned as main event players at that point. They had not. Meanwhile, and that's not, through no fault of their own, somebody's going to say we're burying those guys. We're not. Just they hadn't main evented yet. And they get their opportunity here, but the buy rate suffers, and maybe as, a, as, as part of that. Um, let's talk about the actual card. First match on the card was phenomenal. If you haven't seen it already, you should go out of your way to see a very young Chris Jericho take on a very young Eddie Guerrero. They go over 17 minutes. It was a great opener. Uh, I, thought the paper, I thought this was a great way to start the pay-per-view. Lots of hot moves back and forth. Uh, ultimately... Uh, Guerrero would uh, get the win and then capture the WCW Cruiserweight title from Chris Jericho, uh, and Meltzer would rate it three and three-quarter stars. I know you're not normally a fan of the Cruiserweights, but I think you mean specifically the Luchadors. Where they're yes, matched. I do. Uh, what did you think of this match? Loved it. Absolutely loved it because I, I, I love both competitors. They both not only could work a match, and we, we saw that, but they were both guys who really cared about the business old-school style. Uh, and both were, were just tremendous. It was it was one of the better opening matches that we had had on a pay-per-view ever, really, if you think about it. Uh, and it, it was tremendous. No, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I thought it was a phenomenal match. And if you haven't already you know, seen some Chris Jericho from this era, uh, it's good stuff. There were lots of uh, technical snafus in this show, Tony. Uh -huh. The first one I noticed is when Guerrero is coming to the ring, the graphic that appears on screen says he is the Hall of Heat. Yeah. Uh, who would have been in control of handling things like that for WCW? The executive producer is Craig Leathers, and that's him. So uh, Craig Leathers is in the truck when this is going down, or where would yep. he be watching the show? No, he's in the truck. Uh, it seems like stuff like this happened 
a lot in WCW, yeah. and we didn't see this as much with the WWF. Is that because of Kevin Dunn, Vince McMahon, or both? Well, it's because of Kevin Dunn and because of a guy named Kerwin Selfies. I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah. Kerwin before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, of course, Vince. But uh, to me, we could not. And we had uh, a guy named Keith Mitchell. Yeah. Who I know you heard of, who was as good in production as, as anybody. Keith was was kind of like, he wasn't, Craig was in charge, okay? And there's no way that Craig Leathers could compete with a Kevin Dunn or a Kerwin Selfies. No way he can compete with it at all. So, there. Uh, next up, we have got Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner tagging uh, to take on the Harlem Heat. And they go about 11 minutes, maybe 12 minutes, uh, when Rick finally gets the pin over Stevie Ray. Uh, this match only gets two and a quarter stars here. And this is right before we start to see Scott Steiner become a single star. He's as big of a house. Uh, he, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty pop and pump, but, man, yeah. he's well on his way. Um, yeah, I, I turned to was watching uh, some of this with one of my sons. And when the Rick, uh, when Scott came came out, I looked, turned to my son and I said, "Looks like someone put an air hose up his ass, doesn't it?" Because he was getting big, and he slicked his hair back, and we're showing the formation of Big Papa Pump, which I think, in reality, when you go back and think about the, the Steiners in the early '90s with the Varsity Club jackets, and it's to me that was my favorite Scott Steiner, the the Varsity Club version. Well, the, the version where they both came out with, with Michigan jackets yeah, absolutely. and Scott had the the mullet or the long hair. Yeah, I didn't, That's mean, my favorite I didn't mean the Kevin Sullivan angle. I just meant right, know, right, the, right. the early 90s version. Yeah. The uh, one that I saw at the Tokyo Dome. Well, everything's better in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> well, apparently so. Uh, yeah, I was a fan of uh, the Steiner Brothers. They were my favorite tag team as a kid, for sure. Uh, but I, I'm curious about your perception of working with Scott Steiner because he's always kind of been one of those more polarizing guys. The rap on Rick Steiner is that uh, he is uh, cool, laid back, level-headed. The rap on Scott was that he could be uh, difficult to deal with. Uh, you were there. You saw him as a youngster and then the evolution of this Big Papa Pump character. What was your interaction with Scott? My interaction with Scott was, was pretty good and pretty honest. Uh, Scott was a scary guy. Uh, we would do interviews in the back at times. I remember specifically being in Salisbury, Maryland. And Scott kept screwing up the interview backstage or pre-tape. And I was doing it. And he kept screwing up. And then he would stomp back and forth and back and forth uh, between takes, cursing at himself. Uh, and I remember saying to him, I'd say, Scotty, shut the fuck up and let's do this thing. And I remember thinking, uh-oh. And he laughed at me. <laughs> and then he just kind of laughed at me. So he was really kind of a good guy, but he would get into this zone when the lights were on that uh, was really kind of scary. But overall, Scott Steiner was a good kid. He really was. Uh, it was much more different than Rick. Uh, but he, he was a good kid. How would, you, how would you describe Rick? Uh, just kind of like to uh, hang around, take a dip of snuff, and smile at everybody. You know, they did some crazy things, too. 
Yeah, they have a reputation for kind of ribbing some guys and um, maybe taking things a little too far occasionally. Yeah, uh, with some of the guys. And Rick has told some. Or Rick Flair has told some stories about that specifically when they used to kind of. Um, you know, the word these days is bully, but they would they would rib and kind of prank and maybe take it a little too far with right. Butch Reed. And one day, allegedly, Rick says he asked Ron Simmons, hey, man, uh, why don't they do that to you? And supposedly, Ron says, I'm unfuckwithable, <laughs> which I think is still one of the greatest lines in the history of wrestling. I'm unfuckwithable. Yeah. Uh, did you see those guys maybe have their way? There's a there's a great story about and I didn't go on tour in Germany, but there's a great story. We had an announcer, a German announcer, uh I think his name was Oliver. And it's not Oliver Kopp who I've seen online, but it's another guy named Oliver. And Oliver was kind of obnoxious. And uh as the story goes, and I didn't see it, but pretty much it's it's a it's a true story. Uh they got Oliver got drunk near the end of the uh, Germany tour. And usually in Germany, something crazy, or usually overseas, something crazy would happen. Uh, they, uh, he got drunk that night, passed out, so the Steiners took a Sharpie and marked his face all up, putting swastikas on his face, oh, shaved, his, shaved his eyebrows. Uh, and I think there's another story where uh, Chip Burnham, who's now passed away, passed away this past year, was a promoter of ours, uh, Chip loved to give the Steiners shit for some unknown reason. And if you gave the Steiners shit a lot, if you got on them, they would get on you. And apparently they they uh, duct taped uh, uh, Chip Burnham's hands behind him and pulled out his pants and stuck a couple of Sharpies up his ass. Uh, that, uh, I'm sure that happened, too. So let this be a lesson to you. If you're listening and you're going to an autograph signing, yeah. don't you dare give a Steiner brother a Sharpie. There's yeah. no telling what's going to happen with that thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing, uh, you know, Eric's son, uh, who was uh, backstage a lot, you know, k- kids when they're backstage, and my kids were backstage at times too, but Eric's son could be obnoxious, as kids could be, and he would always be screwing with the Steiners, and they would they would just push him around. I mean, like really push him around and laugh about it. And he like, you know, like any silly kid, he'd come back, and I remember, th- remember thinking, man, they're getting rough with this kid. They just don't give a shit. So, yeah, regardless of who you are, what age you are, leave the Steiners alone. And you know the, the rib about all of this? What's that? Is that Rick Steiners a member of the Cherokee County School Board? Yeah, absolutely, yes. That's the rib. And, and by the way, um, you know, all our rowdy friends have settled down. They're both really cool guys in 2017. Um, if you have the pleasure to meet one of these guys that have personal oh, yeah. appearance, don't, don't feel weird about making the approach. They're good dudes. Yeah, again, Scotty Steiner was a great kid. He just, when the tape machines were rolling, and he, then when he became Big Papa Pump, I ain't going to be around anywhere for this shit, buddy, because he's crazy. Um, so if you were a wrestler, you wouldn't have wanted to be in the ring with him during this period. He was a little no. over the edge. No, wouldn't have. If, uh, if you had to be in the ring with a wrestler, who would it be and why is it Tom Zink? I don't know if it would be so much Tom Zink now as I think about it. Uh, it could have been Ray Mysterio Jr. because, as I had mentioned last week, once he took the mask off, he was kind of cute. All right, in the next match, we've got Alex Ryan retaining the WCW TV title 
And he's doing so in a pretty good match with Ultima Dragon, or Ultimate Dragon, if you're Tony Schiavone. They go 18 minutes and uh, 43 seconds. The match would get three and a half stars in the Observer. Uh, but Meltzer was not done with Tony Schiavone. He wrote, mm. To prove once again that nothing that goes on in the ring registers with the announcers, after Wright did that move, Schiavone said, Have we ever seen Alex Wright do that? When, in fact, he's done it dozens of times in WCW. Mike Tanay did explain that it was on pay-per-view and it had an extended time limit for the TV title from the regular 10- or 15-minute television show, although no one ever actually said how long. Uh, so after you just said, hey, maybe I went too hard on Meltzer, he's taking you to task again here. What did you think of the match and uh, any response to these criticisms? Uh, uh, first of all, I think, going back to what we said earlier, that my work was shitty. Uh, number two is that I probably would have been less criticized by Dave Meltzer had I called him after every fucking event like a lot of guys did. Oh. It's true. It's absolutely true. Mark Madden, later on in the years, even told me, Mark Madden said, you know, it's it's probably true that if you call Dave and talk to him, he won't be as shitty towards you. And I said, well, let's hear for journalism. Uh, so... That's my response to that. And I did call Dave twice. Twice throughout my years. And what did you call him for? Well, one time I was drunk. I don't know why I ended up calling. second time I called him was when I left WWF and came back to WCW. I did not, in the dirt sheets, want some sort of bullshit rumor floating out there. So I called Dave and said, Dave, I'm leaving, and here's why. And he put it in there exactly as I told him, in fairness to him. Uh, I'm just curious. Why does one drunk dial Dave Meltzer? I don't know. I was so drunk I couldn't even tell you. I don't even know how I got the number. Well, but I knew I, I knew I was drunk. Did you ever hear what you talked about with him? Because clearly you don't remember. No, I don't remember. No. I don't remember. Twice I called him. It's amazing. Yeah. M- maybe whatever you should have. I should have called him more times, right? Well, I'm just wondering if what you said when you were drunk is what pissed him off so bad. And so then he'd just shit on your commentary for the rest of your No, career. no, no, no. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been like, look, it's human nature. It's human nature. If you're friendly with a guy, he's going to be a little bit more fair to you when he writes or when he talks about you. I understand that. But I didn't like to play that game. I, you know, I, I really, I, I really, there was a part of me back then because of, of growing up in it and loving it and being a, a fan of it and being told by Jimmy Crockett uh, that, uh, being told by Jimmy Crockett that we, uh, that we respect the business and what you see here stays here. There was a part to me that resented all the dirt sheets and resented uh, them trying to expose the business. I thought they were exposing the business, and I was for that. I was on that school. There's a lot of people that really didn't look at it. They looked at it like Dave Meltzer could help their career. Right. So I was on the other side, and therefore a lot of things he said about me. Let me say again about Dave. A lot of things he said about me was right on. A lot of things he said about me was just him being full of shit. Anything you want to talk about uh, with this Alex Wright Ultima Dragon match? What stuck out to you the most? Any interesting uh, little stories or tidbits you can share about either guy? Uh, I thought Alex Wright was a very handsome young man. Hmm. Uh, they had a great match. I thought Alex was very it was vastly over. <laughs> Why'd you go? Mm. I was clearing my throat. I'm sorry. Okay. I thought Alex was uh, vastly underrated as as a worker. 
I thought the Berlin gimmick that we went uh, to later did not serve him well. And I think he proved it here. He had he had a thought he had a very good match, very good match. Even though did uh, uh, I I didn't see that match. I didn't see that move before. Did you see it before, Mike? Yes, I did, Tony. You dumb shit. Uh, so I thought it was I thought it was very good. And as we know in the business, uh, Jim Barnett really liked Alex Wright. Hmm. Uh, next up, we see uh, the NWO allegedly attack Kurt Henning to injure him so he will not be able to wrestle in the war games. This happens backstage. Uh, mean Gene is reacting to the supposed uh, beatdown, and this is almost a carbon copy of an angle they did with Kurt Henning a year prior. Uh, in the fall of 96, he had um, a, a situation going with Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Mark Miro for the Intercontinental title, and it looked as if Miro had a confidant and someone in his corner, someone he could count on, and Kurt. But then they find Kurt laying in the back and assume that it was Hunter who laid him out. It was actually just a put-on, and Kurt, ta-da, is actually a bad guy. A year later, here we are. The yeah. next match on the show is uh, Jeff Jarrett. He would wrestle Dean Malenko. They go nearly 15 minutes, and the winner here earns a U.S. title shot in Las Vegas. And that would take place the very next month in October at WCW's Halloween Havoc. Uh, to get the match started, Jarrett tells Deborah McMichael to go to the back before the match even gets started. Meltzer would call this another good match and says Malenko got the clover leaf on, but Jarrett made the ropes. Deborah came out at that point. After all kinds of near falls and reverses, Malenko was distracted by Deborah and Jarrett clipped him and put on the figure four for the submission. One of the rare times in the late 90s that you see a figure four win a match, but it does here. Uh, three and a quarter stars, Jarrett going over Malenko. Uh, what were your two favorite things about this match, Tony? Uh, my favorite thing about this match was when Deborah walked in at the beginning and then when Deborah walked in at the end. No, look, I know what you're trying to set me up. Uh, great performers. I never understood why why Deborah left. Did you? Did anybody? I mean, it was kind of odd that he would send her out and send her back. It didn't make uh, any sense to me. No, it made no sense at all. Uh, but, uh, again, I go back to this. Deborah is so beautiful, and, of course, she's a good friend of mine. Why didn't we take, when she came back out, cut away shots of her? Vince would have played it up. No, for sure. It feels like a lot of this uh, show production-wise, you know, a lot of stuff from this era of WCW, though, just could have been flat done better. And sure. If this was in the WWF, like you're saying, they certainly would have gotten those shots. From a fan perspective who wasn't familiar with the Fargo strut and the history of that, yeah. the fact that Jarrett is portraying himself as a bit of a horseman ally and doing a strut that some would say is similar to Ric Flair and using yeah. a figure four, does this not feel like a modern-day Buddy Landale-type situation? Yes, it did. And I think we even touched on that about his uh, affection or his uh, how much he and liked Ric Flair, so we tried to put that over. But uh, in reality, he probably pulled it off better than anybody else. But isn't that always like a recipe for design? It feels like a kiss of death for a character if your character is that you look up to another. Yeah, but still, you know, Jeff Jarrett was a pretty good performer. Oh, phenomenal. I'm just saying, I wonder. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he would go on to much greater success after he would leave and come back. And he didn't do this nearly to this level. Um, 
when did some of the problems start to exist between Deborah McMichael and Mongo? Obviously, we don't want to get in anybody's personal business, but is this around that time, or when did that start to? Yeah, you know? it was around this time. Uh, you know, uh, Mongo was a, a legit badass. Sure. And a pretty hard partier. Uh, and when you when you get your wife involved in the business, that's another recipe for disaster. Sure. So that's kind of when it all started as well. I thought it was kind of interesting, and we even brought it up in the match that, you know, how crazy is this, that he's going to be facing the U.S. champion with his wife, the U.S. champion's wife, in his corner. So I thought it was a pretty neat little story. No, it is a good story, but it's, it's weird how, you know, art imitates life sometimes. Yeah. And, and I know those guys would get divorced in 98, I believe. And so here we are in the fall of 97, so it feels like this could have been uncomfortable. Do you remember there being any sort of weirdness for the boys in the back uh, or, or any sort of subsequent weirdness from this kind of being on camera and maybe they're having problems in real life, but they're both in the locker room? Was any of that an issue that you recall? No, they were in different locker rooms. Uh, so, uh, and they were separated pretty much as far as uh, what they were doing. You know, she was... Uh, she was in the women's section of the backstage area that I frequented a lot. Sure. Uh, and would go back and talk to her and uh, talk to some of the ladies and hang out and did her hair you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, there was always weirdness. There, there was weirdness with that. There was weirdness with with uh, you know Kevin Sullivan and Nancy and Benoit and all of that stuff. It's just. Uh, and, of course, then there was weirdness with Diamond Dallas Page and Buff Bagwell and Kimberly. And it, it, it never was a good recipe. Never. Ne there was, there was no, there would have been no way in the world that I would have ever brought Lois backstage to a wrestling event for crying out loud. What are we thinking? I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it's page one of the book of bad ideas. Like if, yes. Uh -huh. If you want to stay married, don't get your wife around the business. No, not at all. You know, that's one of the things we should mention about Arn. You know, I know we started with a lot of Arn stories and stuff, but Arn is yeah. a little bit of an anomaly in the business. He lives in the same town he has in the same house, I believe, for like 30 years. He's been married to the same woman, and he's worked pretty consistently without a break since he got in. So it is a little bit of an anomaly to be in the same house, in the same town, with the same wife, in the same line of work with seemingly no gaps the entire, yeah. you know, for more than 30 years. Uh, and, you know, obviously time passes, but it's a testament to Arn that he's had this yeah. sort of staying power in his real life and just all around. Yeah, and, and I agree. And, he, and here's one of the reasons that Arn and Aaron have stayed married for so long, because it's the same reason that Lois and I have stayed married for so long. Uh, Arn Anderson would say, and he told me this one time uh, when we had the twins, he said, five kids? He said, you're married for life. You're married for life. But. That's a joke. The reality is that Arn and Aaron have worked at it, and Lois and I worked at it. We found time for our marriage. We wanted to make it work. And when you wanted to make it work, more times than not, you do. And that's just my personal feeling on that. Um, are we going to tell the Arn Anderson water buffalo story? Uh, I don't remember it like Jim Cornette remembers it. So there's a famous story with, um, might as well tell it now, Jim Cornette tells a story of back in the good old Jim Crockett days, you could just pull right up at the airfield 
and get out of your car and get on to the Crockett's private plane and just take right off. You didn't have to go right. through the airport. You didn't have to go through TSA. This is pre-9-11, so things were a little different. Well, allegedly, if you believe the Jim Cornette version of the story, um, the car pulls up. It's a station wagon. It's a litter of the Shivani uh, children. Right. And they're all inside the car, and the plane is off. They're all just seated, kind of waiting. And supposedly the car pulls up, and you just hear the normal engine. But then when the car doors open, it is the loudest, most zoo-like raucous you've ever heard, just crazy, abundant noise. Yeah. And then the door shuts, and it's complete silence again. Right. And that is when Shivani's getting out of the car and then coming onto the plane, and then Lois and the litter uh, pull away. Allegedly, you climb the stairs, turn to get onto the plane, Arn Anderson locks eyes and says, Tony, go ahead. You, have, <laughs> you apparently have enough coming you to shampoo a buffalo. I don't know why, but that has always been one of my very favorite Arn Anderson yeah, my, stories. Mine too. Uh, Arn Anderson also announced, and I just said, you never let Lois backstage, but... Uh, when Chris was born, when Chris and you met Chris, when he was uh, he was born in 1985. About by that time, uh, when when Arn Anderson's famous uh, "Enough Coming Into Shampoo Buffalo" line came out, uh, we had uh, two infants, a kid five years old, one four and one three. So that's how nuts our life was. Okay, nuts. Uh, and Lois came to Jim Crockett Promotions one day. She had gone to the doctor. And she came in the backstage area where we were doing the interviews, and I saw her walk in, and I saw her whisper to Arn. And so I was doing the, the interviews, the local interviews, and as I'm uh, getting ready to do an interview, Arn Anderson says, Cut! Cut! Hold it! I got something to announce to everybody. Our fat-ass, dumpy little, redneck announcer from Virginia is getting ready to have another baby. And that's how I found out that Chris was... Lois was pregnant with Chris. And he said, don't you know how to keep the thing in your pants? And all the guys broke up and Lois left. Yeah. So that's how I found out with that. Uh, but, yeah, he had some great lines. With, uh, the Arn Anderson stories are the best. No, they are, for sure. Yeah. And i got a Klondike Bill story, too, that people have been wanting to hear. Let's do it. Wait, well, did Klondike Bill help put up the cage at War Games? Yeah, he was part of that. Okay, we'll get to it in just a minute. Let's go to the next match right. on the card. Wrath and Mortis took on Ming and the Barbarian, and Wrath and Mortis get the win here, believe it or not. They go about 12 and a half minutes. Meltzer wrote, the crowd pretty much died for this match. Long yeah. highlight was Mortis getting on Wrath's shoulders and superplexing Barbarian off the top rope. Finish saw Ming get the Tongan death grip on both James Vandenberg and Mortis, but from behind, Wrath would hit the death penalty for the win. It got a star and a quarter. Uh, Tony, what's your favorite Wrath match? <laughs> I don't know what my favorite wrath match is, but he was a good performer. I, I think uh, one and a quarter stars is is unkind for this match. I thought that they worked a pretty good match for those guys. I think I, that I think that Dave has an affinity for Ming and certainly Mortis, but I don't think Dave is high on wrath or barbarian. I could okay, be, I could be wrong. Right, he's probably right. I look, Mortis is. Chris Canyon, one of the great performers, I think, in a short span of all time. 
Wow, that's a hot take. But you know what? As far as in-ring work, the dude was awesome. I was the dude. Was awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, tragedy. He's a real tragedy. When I left the business, uh, I went to his house with, and there were a bunch of guys there, and we watched uh, the uh, WrestleMania that uh, that following April at his house. And he lived in Marietta at that time. Uh, so uh, Mortis was tremendous. I thought it was a good match. I liked, always liked James Vandenberg as a as a heel ref, as a heel manager. I don't know when we'll talk about him again, but he is one of the more interesting men in the history of wrestling, and I think. You know, time has kind of passed him by as far as being a focal point of an interesting character. But yeah, I've only met him a couple of times, but I feel like if you just followed him around, he could be like the new Dozeki's guy. He seems like one of the most interesting men in the world. Yeah, and, and this uh, the Tongan Death Grip on him, he sold it very, very well. And I thought for that match, and uh, right, the fans kind of sat on their hands, it ended up being a pretty decent finish to that. So, Well, uh, the next match, uh, which we talked about a little earlier that you called essentially a squash match, the Giant pinned Scott Norton here after five and a half minutes after a choke slam. Uh, Norton had control most of the match, using his power to throw the Giant around. Then the Giant makes a comeback, doing the nip-up, uh, or kip-up, depending on how you pronounce that. A drop mm. kick and a finisher with the choke slam. Uh, Meltzer would write, not bad for what it was, but... I thought it was pretty cool. A few things about this stand out to me. One, what phenomenal shape the Giant was in here. Uh, two, how, how much his entrance stands out when there's no music. In the yes. sea of big entrance music, uh, his is unique when there's nothing. It goes to show you that sometimes less is more. Uh, his his simple little raising the hand to, to symbol the choke slam was over. The crowd reacted to it. Uh, and then, of course, as we talked about, you know, he does this kip up and then he does a drop kick. Two things that you don't expect to see from a guy his size, and a lot of people in wrestling would say, big men don't do that, be a giant. But the idea that he could do it is what made it so special to me. I thought this was a really fun match. Uh, a star and a quarter, I mean, I guess people want to be critical because there wasn't hurricane runners or crazy yeah, you know, right. false finishes, but... It was a fun match for what it was, and I thought it told a really good story that the Giants, while there may be, you know, a lot of people taking L's on the WCW side in this fight against the NWO, the Giant is still kind of the ace in the hole. No question. And there's also a part of this that needs to be uh, mentioned, too. The job that Scott Norton did for him. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. And now, if you go back and look at that match, I know this happened, and I saw it again. When Scott took the choke slam and the Giant covered him, the Giant put his head down on Scott's chest and thanked him for the job he just did and for taking that bump. He was talking to him at that time. Scott, uh, it was it was a squash match in the pay-per-view, but it was a damn good one. No, I, And it, it helped put the Giant over. I thought it was really good for what it was, as you said. And I thought, you know, Scott, Scott really did a good job of putting him over as the Giant. And considering the height he got on the choke slam, I mean, you can't do that without some help from Scott Norton because he's a man and a half. So... Right. Uh, it was fun for what it was. Uh, next up, we've got Lex Luger tagging with Diamond Dallas Page, and they would actually beat Scott Hall and Randy Savage. They go about 10 minutes in a no-DQ match. Um, eventually, we get uh, a situation where Scott Hall decks the referee, Mark Curtis, and then Mickey J comes out, and Hall stomps on his head. 
So this brings Larry Zabisco out of the broadcast booth, and then, of course, Zabisco and Hall have heat as they've been yelling at each other as Zabisco's been at the commentary booth for weeks now, and this has been kind of going on on Nitro. Zabisco winds up shoving Hall, who then falls over Luger, and Zabisco does a bit of a fast count for the pin, and Meltzer would give it two stars. There's been lots of talk about this, but allegedly Scott Hall wanted to do this for Zabisco because of his early days in the AWA and feeling like when he was kind of young and new to the business and green, Zabisco tried to, you know, make him look good by going to a time limit draw when Zabisco was in a much higher spot on the card than Scott Hall. Do you remember there being any sort of conversation about this wanting to be something that Hall wanted to do to kind of repay the favor for that? I remember that conversation, and it didn't surprise me because Larry was always a professional. Absolutely one of the one of the great professionals. And, uh, you know, Scott being a, a shit disturber. You know, I knew, listen, I knew Scott Hall back uh, from like 1982 when he was a member of the grounds crew at Crockett Park. Uh, so he really, really wanted to get into business. And... Uh, I remember this this being a discussion. Man, isn't that something when you think about it? Working on the grounds crew to where he yep. become. Yeah. Uh, One of the great stars. Oh, absolutely. Next up, here we are. It's the main event. It's War Games. Uh, you probably already know the story. It's Marcus Alexander Bagwell, Buff Bagwell, teaming with Kevin Nash, Six, and Conan, and they would beat the team of the Four Horsemen, which was Rick Flair, Chris Benoit, Steve McMichael, and a seemingly injured Kurt Henning. And Kurt would be, and we've talked about this before, but just briefly, give everybody your opinion on the War Games match. This one or the concept, in the concept of the match? Okay. Like I said earlier, I never liked the concept of a War Games match, and I liked it a lot less when we could not get blood. To me, the big pop in wrestling is one, two, three, he wins it. Right. You weren't going to get that in war games because it was surrender or submission. And once all ten guys in the first war games got into the ring, it was a lot of crazy things going on. And how would you – it just – to me, it was a popcorn fart to have some guy give up after that. So I never liked it in the, in the beginning. And I certainly didn't like this one because we couldn't bleed. And the fact that we end up now with – normally we usually had five guys on each side. Am I right about that? Four horsemen and J.J. in the first one. Remember that? Five guys. Yep, yep. And now we had four guys, and now we only had three. So to me, two rings, the big cage that was not going to help matters out because you couldn't bleed uh, in the storyline, uh, and you only had uh, seven guys, to me, was too much ring and too much cage for two little performers. Well, let's talk about the match itself. Uh, the storyline here is that... Um Kurt is the babyface who's just taken Arn Anderson's spot in the Four Horsemen, but he's been attacked by the NWO. And, of course, wouldn't you know it, the heels win the coin toss. So they get the two-on-one advantage to start, and eventually they're all in there, and Kurt Henning comes out, and he's got his arm in a sling, and even though he's hurt, he still wants to make a go of it. Um Meltzer would write, this really wasn't much of a match except for a strong performance by Benoit and some great bumps early by six. By the way, the match goes to 19 and a half minutes. 
Mm. It started with Benoit versus Bagwell, who really didn't do a lot in the first Big Show main event of his career. Conan was in next, followed by McMichael. By this point, the match was pretty good. Six came in and began saving the match with some really great bumps. At this point, Henning came out with his arm in a sling to the horseman corner. Flair came in to the expected big pop, followed by Nash, who destroyed everyone. The crowd chanted for Sting. Henning's dramatic against all odds entrance got no crowd pop at all, and he immediately took the sling off and gave the NWO members handcuffs to put on Benoit and McMichael. They all destroyed Flair. Every time they asked Benoit or McMichael to quit, they'd say no. Finally, they put Flair's head to where they would begin to destroy it with the cage, and McMichael said that was enough. Henning still slammed the door on Flair's head. This was all an angle to cover for Flair having some cosmetic surgery, either a facelift or an eye lift, and taking about two months off. The fact that this had been kept from everyone and how the timing, the card, and everything else worked out at the end of the show that was so far as the heat from the parody, while there was some legitimate heat, certainly from the NWO side, there's a ton of heat on Flair right now. It sure worked out well for the storyline in the end, didn't it? Two and a half stars. Mm. So I want to talk about this because the match really isn't that bad. Right. Um, you know, for what it is. It does feel a little bit B-team because you have guys who aren't normally in the main event in the main event. And by that, I mean Benoit and Mongo, but also on the other side, Bagwell, Six, and Conan had not been in main events up to this point. And I realized, well, they've got to get there eventually. I understand. But this is also historically the big blow-off pay-per-view for WCW. In another era, and certainly it was another era, the War Games was a really, really big deal. And, yep. here, and here they're doing it in the Carolinas. This ought to be huge. Now, Flair has been super critical of this finish and saying, Oh, they killed the town, they killed the horseman, and, and Kevin Nash takes the mic afterwards and says the death of the horseman right here in their own backyard, and you, you sell it on air and say something like, oh, gosh, I hope that's not true, or something like that. Yeah. So my question, I guess, is I don't understand the logic, and I'm struggling with this, because if they're really upset that they didn't get to do the run-in to save this Arn Anderson Four Horsemen parody, why would Flair then, and, he, and he's been critical of this even to this day, saying, oh, this killed the town. Flair knows he's going to take two months off for this surgery, and you guys actually open Nitro the next night with no audio, and it's just footage of Flair being marked up, prepared for surgery the very next morning. And it was from that morning when he was getting surgery done. And then you at the desk can't continue and say you can't do the show because you're only here in the business because Ric Flair saw something in you when you were calling minor league baseball 13 years prior and you're very emotional about your friend and you walk off the set. I, I guess what I don't understand is how can Flair or anybody on the horseman side be critical of this angle if they know the payoff is going to result in Flair getting squashed with his head in a cage because he's taking two months off. I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I saw this as a, a half-assed decent match with a finish that was to further the angle of the NWO. I didn't see it as killing the Horsemen, or I didn't see it as killing off Flair or killing off the Carolinas. I saw it as just an extension of the NWO being a bunch of dickheads as we tried to portray and moving forward with that. 
That's what I saw. And as a result, I thought the Nature Boy did a pretty good job for them. If you can call what he did being a job. Because to me, the fact that these guys, and of course there's Conan who can't, for some reason, cannot hook a uh, a uh, handcuff on somebody. But the, uh, <laughs> I kept saying, Jesus, click it, just click it. He, hook he, him up. He's used to being cuffed, not actually cuffing anyone. Okay, that came from a Conrad Thompson. It's a fucking joke. Oh, <laughs> I, know, I, I know it's a fucking joke. I love jokes. I tell jokes all the time. Totally. I'm going I'm to tell a lot of jokes in Dallas on July 9th. Roll title. Okay. So, uh, but I thought the visual of all those guys hammering Ric Flair, doing things to Ric Flair while the other guys were handcuffed, was a pretty damn good visual for Heat. Yeah. I didn't see anything wrong with it. You know, the the... the the next thing to discuss, of course, is there's no payoff. So this makes a lot of sense as far as booking for heat, but there's got to be this triumphant, now Flair gets the horsemen together, rallies them, and they finally get their revenge on these dastardly NWO members. That, right. never, that never happened. Yeah. I can't answer that. Things change. Booking committees change. People change. Opinions change. Uh, the 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 fans throughout the match are chanting, "We want Sting, we want right. Sting." Do you think the absence of him hurt it pretty bad here? Hurt it a lot. If nothing else, Sting should have made some. I yeah, that was that was. I mean, it was you you try to book a pay per view based on what you think the fans are going to want to see, and it was pretty apparent the fans wanted to see Sting. We missed the boat on that. What was the mood in the crowd? You know, they can't. A lot of them, you know, even though we're saying this is horseman country, let's be, let's not get it twisted here. The damn NWO is over like nobody's business. Yeah, but so, there was a lot of heat. Yeah, that's that was my question. Is yeah. you know, was it was it somber? I mean, were, were people upset? Were people mad at the promotion? Uh, what was the what was the mood in the building with the fans that night? Well, it's hard to tell sometimes if anger is anger at the heels for the heat or anger at the promotion. We go back to a couple of weeks ago on this, on our podcast here when I, when uh, they stopped the match in Baltimore because Luger bled. Great they were mad at the promotion. Yeah. Yeah. This, I kind of thought, it, it, and if you watch this event, you'll know that there's, there's a bunch of guys in the front row of ringside who are kind of off to the side, who are like, you know, are getting with it and everything and are, are trying to be irreverent and funny and doing some funny things, mugging towards the camera. But when this all went down, they were legitimately pissed off because they were flair guys. Right. And I don't think they were pissed off at the promotion more than they were pissed off at now the NWO for what they did to the horsemen. I mean, so I think there was legitimate heat. Yeah, it's one of those deals where, you know, this could have been the beginning of something you know, that would have been awesome as far as the payoff goes if you're a Horseman fan. But we don't get it. And our next big great Horseman moment wouldn't be until September of the next year when Flair made his return. Um, but what I want to talk about is this cage. Because yeah. the finish here and them slamming the door on Flair's head right. um, really came off really well. And, yeah, it did. And I, when I watched this back, knowing what I know now, I couldn't help but think, I bet Klondike Bill built that. I'm sure Klondike had something to do with it because he built most of the stuff. You know, I talked, I mentioned that uh, that Scott Hall and Danny Spivey had worked on the uh, 
Crockett Park uh, grounds crew, and they work with two-ton George Harris and the head groundskeeper, Klondike Bill. Uh, and, and Klondike Bill became, uh, was loved by everybody. There is, and we've got to find this, there is a WCW Monday Nitro where Eric Bischoff. It's on YouTube. I it's on YouTube? Yeah, you okay. Go, you, go ahead and describe it, but this is available on YouTube right now. Yeah, and he uh, he ends up working for Klondike Bill that day, uh, which is, to me, just kind of... But, but Klondike was, as we have established on this program, quite a character, and he would always hit me with this reoccurring theme that happened to him apparently early in his life when he was wrestling, I guess, up in Canada. Uh, and Klondike would always... And, and I... I know Klondike's grandson, Christopher, is listening. Christopher, I'm sorry about this. This was your granddad, and this is the way we loved him. Klondike, we used to always rub that scraggly old gray beard of his, and he would say, Tony, he said, you know what, to me, would be the greatest thing that I can have happen to me? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I would, yeah, like that in my mind, I would go, oh, God. He said, I would like to get underneath a coffee table, a oh, glass coffee no, table. No. Oh, yeah. No. I like to get under a glass coffee table and have a girl just straddle that coffee table and shit and piss all over the table so I could see it. And uh, there would be a stunned silence on my part to where I say, bullshit, that's happened to you, hasn't it? And he said, no. I said, bullshit, it's happened to you. You've had a, a, a one or two women do that. And he would smile and that would be it. But he would hit me with that periodically through the years. Tony, rub that beard. You know what I'd like to see? Just a girl. I would just go underneath that table and look up and see her. Just <laughs> Tony. <laughs> oh God, that guy was that guy was incredible. I can't believe of all That's what, of all the yeah. things. Yeah. I just. It, look, you, that would have to have happened to you for you to come up with it. You can't just come up with that in your sick mind, can you? No, it's a thing, actually. It um, is? Yeah. Oh, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Klondike loved it. And Klondike loved it back in the early 80s. So maybe he was the forerunner of this. I, I feel like Klondike Bill deserves a lot of credit for UrbanDictionary.com. Yeah, he could. He absolutely could. So, Klondike Bill was really fond of the glass bottom boat rides. And if I were a betting man, I would say within the next two calendar weeks, we will have Klondike Bill glass bottom boat ride tours mm -hmm. as a shirt that's available at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And if you happen to cruise over there right now, you're going to see, and I don't even sure you've seen these. Have you seen all the new shirts over at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW, Tony? Yes, I have. Our, our good buddy from out of Halifax, Matt McGrath, who I just absolutely love, uh, doing a great job He's designing these shirts for us. He, he is so talented. He's got a shirt that, that it's safe to wear around the house now. It's Tony Schiavone, We're Out of Time, established 1957. It's got the big gold belt in the background. You've also got, in honor of... Ming being a ninja, the old commentary ninja in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles font, maybe my favorite shirt in honor of the great Tom Zink, the hot tag t-shirt in honor of 
Tom's Inc. And it's a little ode to Krispy Kreme. Of course, you can just be out front with business and say, I'm a Tom's Inc. guy. Grab your button on a fur coat t-shirt. Maybe you're a big fan of Colonel Parker's Jump Rope Academy that was established in 1951. But in honor of the great Klondike Bill, it's not the Sesame Street shirt, it's the Klondike Street shirt, and it's not the Cookie Monster, it's the Panty Monster. Go pick it up. ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And when you pick up one of these shirts, not only will you embarrass your entire family, but you'll also get a call from Tony Schiavone. Do I have that right? You have that right. I do need to say this, that I'm behind on my calls. I apologize for that. You know what happened uh, this past week? Uh, Pro Wrestling Tees did a sale, a customer appreciation sale, and I put it on Twitter, and within 20 minutes, I we had sold like 20 shirts. So all of a sudden, it went, yikes, I'm way behind. I apologize that. Enjoy talking to a lot of uh, of, of the people out there, and uh, and uh, I... Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, Conrad. I, I know I've mentioned this the last couple of years. I'm really enjoying this. And uh, thanks to the people at Pro Wrestling Teams, and thanks to uh, the Townsend Matt McGrath out of uh, Nova Scotia. Well, and we also want to go ahead and thank uh, Matt Coon, because right at the end of this show, stay tuned. We've still got the poll for next week to discuss. But at the end of that, we've got a very special treat. It's Matt Coon. He put together something special uh, for Dave Meltzer and the little rant that we had last week here with Tony Schiavone not being too kind to Mr. Meltzer. So my apologies in advance, 20-year uh, subscriber to The Observer. Uh, Dave gets my money every single year. Tony, not so much. So Tony gives him the business. Stay tuned for that. Now, you can go ahead and be a part of our business. Just cruise on over and vote in our poll. It's up right now. I are talking all things 1998. As a reminder... We're doing 98 this week, 99 the week follows, 2000, then 2001. June 19th, though, what are we covering, Tony Giovanni? June 19th, we are covering the Four Horsemen. And we are going to cover the Four Horsemen because I was there for the inception and I was there for the glory years. And I guess I was there in Winston-Salem that night when we had uh, the end of the Four Horsemen, as, as Kevin Nash said. So mark your calendars, tell your friends, June 19th, the Four Horsemen are here. And don't forget to go ahead and enter to win. Win it before you can buy it, actually. The brand-new Four Horsemen book brought to us by our friends over at Mid-Atlantic Gateway. Dick Bourne is an idiot savant about all things Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. He's like the rain man of Jim Crockett Promotions. This book is going to be awesome, uh, and you can win it before you can buy it. Just go like us and then share the post at facebook.com forward slash Monday. But the poll is on Twitter. It's on Twitter at WHWMonday, and it's up right now. It's 1998. The first show on the poll sold out 1998. Uh, we've got an eight-man luchador match to get started. Chris Benoit and Raven, Jericho and Mysterio, Booker T and Rick Martell, Larry Zabisco with Dusty Rhodes taking on Scott Hall with Louis Piccoli, Ray Trailer and the Steiner Brothers taking on Conan, Scott Norton, and Buff Bagwell, Kevin Nash with Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff taking on The Giant. And then, the first time on WCW Pay-Per-View, Bret Hart versus Ric Flair. And in our last match on the card, Lex Luger and Randy Savage. What do you remember most about sold-out 1998 from Dayton, Ohio, Tony? Number one, you got to remember, you got to remember, an eight-man luchador means no one's going to sell shit. Are they? No. No, of course not. But they did sell a lot of pay-per-views that day, and they sold even more and set an all-time pay-per-view record for the company 
at Bash at the Beach, 1998. One of the biggest cards in WCW history. It started with Raven and Saturn in a Raven's Rules match. Then we have Juventud Guerrero and Kidman, Stevie Ray and Chavo Guerrero Jr. In a hair versus hair match, we have Eddie Guerrero versus Chavo. We also had Conan taking on Disco Inferno, The Giant taking on Kevin Green, Rey Mysterio working in a no-DQ match for the Cruiserweight title against the champion Chris Jericho, Booker T would be defending his television title against Bret Hart, Goldberg, the world heavyweight champion, would defend his newly crowned title against Kurt Henning. He had just won the belt that prior Monday on Nitro. Six days later, here he is defending it against Kurt. But in the main event, Hollywood Hogan and Dennis Rodman would tag to take on Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone. One of the biggest shows in WCW history happened in San Diego, July 1998, Bash at the Beach. What might we talk about on Bash 98, Tony? We're going to talk about, if we talk about that one, about the, uh, the use of NWA stars and the crossover that WCW was getting at that time. Thanks a lot in part to Hogan. Uh, talk about, you know, we've already talked about Goldberg, but that's, of course, uh, you know, right after he won the title. So that helped us get the pop as well. But also there's a, there's another match on there that, that I think is, uh, is probably overlooked, and that's Booker T against Bret Hart. Yeah, Booker T became a great singles wrestler, and obviously we know that even further down the road. So It really is kind of the beginning of his major push that you can see right. for a few years. Uh, also in 1998, August, we would have another Sturgis motorcycle rally from Sturgis, South Dakota. Road Wild 1998. You know what's coming here, folks, but we start with Ming and Barbarian. Then we've got the Public Enemy taking on the Dancing Fools. Uh, that's Disco Inferno and Alex Wright. Uh, Saturn would take on Raven and Canyon in a Raven's Rules three-way match. Rey Mysterio and Psychosis would battle for the number one contendership for the Cruiserweight title. We also had Stevie Ray defending his world television title against Chavo Guerrero Jr. That's right, Stevie Ray was TV champ. Steve McMichael would take on Brian Adams. Juventude would challenge Chris Jericho for the Cruiserweight title. And this time, Dean Malenko was a special guest referee. This stuff in 1998 with Chris Jericho is fabulous. Next up on the card, though, it's time for us to talk about Goldberg. Uh, he is in a battle royal here against several guys. Uh, the biggest foe in the match, though, is the Giant. But the real draw here, the main event, Diamond Dallas Page and Jay Leno take on Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Uh, this got lots of headlines, but was, wow, criticized by wrestling folks. Last but certainly not least, 1998, Halloween Havoc. Uh, this is the show where they went off the air without meaning to. They didn't actually get to see the finish for the main 